to 80s high the podcast that chases down the coolest pop culture of the 1980s slashes through the boring stuff and cuts straight to the best movies television toys and more just dripping with 80s nostalgia i'm your host ben and i'm chris Voorhees. <laughs> and this is <laughs> 80s I finally revealed my last name. I, I, had a, I had a feeling you might be part of the family. So Ben Kruger, how do Benny Kruger? Like, yeah, Benny. Oh God, Benny why, why Benny Kruger? Um, Does that mean I get to be Michael Myers? Yes. <laughs> you can, oh, that's very funny. Yes. Oh, so good. So the voice you're hearing, we have a wonderful special guest on the episode this week, a dear Pacific Northwest friend of ours, Mikey. Welcome to Eighties High. Very happy to be here. And slasher film, actually, let's just take off slasher, movie and film aficionado extraordinaire. Very much so. I only had to, you know, spend the entirety of last year trying to talk you into doing a slasher podcast (laughs) as soon as you started. (laughs) We got some guff. Anytime you guys mentioned, oh, somebody's going to be sitting in their car listening to us and screaming (laughs) at the radio, that was me. Anytime a movie was brought up. Well, and Mikey is a testament to the class of 80s high. We keep saying, write us, tag us on Instagram, tell us what topics you want to do or what you love from the 80s. And as Mikey said, he just, like a Jason Voorhees, picking them off one at a time around a lake. He cut us down month after month until we finally got him on the show to talk about a, a genre he knows a lot about. So I'm stoked you're here. This is great. Very happy to be here once again. Gentlemen, we're getting really close to Halloween, one of my favorite seasons of all time. I just at the top of the show in in homeroom, I just want to ask, have you done anything recently that's like getting you in the Halloween spirit? I went to a pumpkin patch this weekend, and that was kind of fun. Uh, It was a really cool little spot, little farm, and they had gourds galore. Gourds galore. One of my Gords favorite uh, underground pop German bands of the 80s. Uh, Gords, Gords galore. galore. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, oh, they're so good. We'll Gords talk about galore. them on the show. I looked to a new days. wave for me. Very new wave. Very new wave. All the puns came out, including my favorite, that pumpkin is gorgeous. Stop and it. No. <laughs> they forcefully ejected me from the farm, and I'm now banned. But no, it was kind of nice. It, it, it felt very fall. It felt very seasonal. It was just nice to be out and about and... Uh, go through a corn maze as well. Were there children in the corn maze? You know, just there was some kid named Malachi and Isaac. <laughs> but, you know, they they seemed cool. They seemed cool. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> Mikey, anything you? I also uh, went to a uh, pumpkin patch today. In fact, oh, was a little more crowded than I would love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it was a beautiful day. The sun was out. People were excited. My daughter was excited. Two-year-old kid in a pumpkin patch. You know, what more could you want? Perfect. I mean, that's the dream. Yeah. Well, we'll make the trifecta. I spent yesterday morning at a pumpkin patch. So apparently <laughs> oh, wow, man. all the same thing going on in our households for Halloween. That is hilarious. But it is delightful. Again, Chris, you and I have talked before at a, at a establishment you and I used to be connected with. There was the October Lovers Club, of which yes. I think we were members. So we do love this month very much. And pumpkin patch and apple orchards are like, 
perfect. If you've listened to this show, my love of October is quite clear. So (laughs) needs no repeating. Just like my appetite, which means I'm very hungry to find out what delicious, dripping, terrifying meals we might have for lunch today. That was a killer segue. Hey! (laughs) Mikey knows what's going on. Uh, Attention, my fellow study buddies at 80s High. I'm Principal Dreyer, here to share today's homeroom announcements. Make your tight rolls tighter and follow the 80s High podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Today's lunch menu will be Sloppy Sloppy Joes, High C, and Jell-O. Hop on board your flying white dog and have never-ending fun by joining the class of 80s High, which is a way for people to suggest show topics, send corrections on stuff we got wrong in episodes, and share other memories and opinions on the 80s, which we'll read on the show. Email 80shighpodcast at gmail.com to join. That's 80S. After school today, the Rubik's Cube Club will have a radical time making things monochromatic. Tomorrow, the Fighting Mogwai's downhill ski team will have their first race of the season down the K-12. Tickets to watch cost $2. Thank you, and have a hella bodacious day. Go Mogwai's. Ben, before we do pop into the topic, should we consult the class of 80s high? Oh, yeah. About some questions we asked them. Very appropriate for this week's topic... Do you like scary movies? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we got some good responses. So this was a multi-choice. We had uh, 40% heck yes. All right, so that's Only good. 40? Only 40%. Yeah. I Man. know. How many times did you bet, log back in and vote, Mikey? As soon as you said, let's go to the questions, I was like, oh, man, did I get that email? Did I fill that oh, out? Oh, no. We had 20% say I do, but the endings are usually disappointing. No, I agree. Definitely. Horror films are very hard to end. It's like an SNL sketch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all great until the ending. It's hard to start to stick the landing. We have a response. This is a write-in. Love the classics and send-ups. Hate the cheese. Mm-hmm. That's like saying I love the beef, the pickles, the mustard, and the bun, but hold the cheese. Who eats a hamburger? <laughs> yeah. That Get out of here. Get out of here. And then I used to love them, but then as I got older, I started to realize that some of the scary stuff that happens in movies also happen in real life. Wow. You know, I get it. That got really existential. It did, but I get it. And I fully endorse the fact that they're like, you know what? Too real. Too soon. I got to step away. I agree. There's some stuff that I'm just like, yeah, I'm good. I don't need that movie in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Is this a documentary or is this the horror fantasy? I'm I'm starting to freak out a little bit. Well, thank you, Class of 80s High, for your input about scary movies. Agreed. I hope we didn't give anyone any haunting memories of some of those scary movies when you had to pull this. But I think there's only one thing left to do. Now that we know, let's hot off to history class with Professor Mikey. Oh, man. Am I a teacher? <laughs> at, at Hogwarts. <laughs> oh, man. But like a cool teacher. You're yeah. not. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm you're like not the, the guy teacher that, like, oh, this guy. Yeah, I roll up on a motorcycle with a leather jacket and <laughs> I put right. a smoke out before That's I come right. in. <laughs> Hey, kids, get ready to learn. And I sit on the edge of my desk. Oh, you got to sit on the corner of the desk. That's essential. And I lean a lot and talk to the the students like I'm one of them. I connect. And sometimes you flip the chair around and you sit like, can we get real here? Can we get real? 
Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead and tear up your books. Just tear the pages out. <laughs> right now. And I often am like running my hands through my hair to like slick it back and make it look better. And, you know, just to show that I'm young and I still have hair. This better all make the final cut. This is amazing. All right. We're in history class. And at the top of the show, there's one thing I really want to get out of the way. With a lot of the topics like we're doing in October, we are going to talk about the slasher genre of movies from the 1980s, which means we're going to be touching on a lot of topics that are horrifying, that are very scary, some that might be based on real events. We might get into issues of sexuality, and and we're definitely going to talk about murder, because that is slasher movies. If any of those topics are not your kind of topic, or you're listening along with people who would not be down with listening to that, this might not be the episode for you. And skip a few forward, or skip a bunch back, because we don't talk about anything scary last spring. But otherwise, if this is your jam, if you're ready and you're down to listen to about horrifying, terrifying slasher films from the 80s. Then get comfy, sit back, and listen up. Because boy, do we have a treat for you today. So 40% has now turned into, what, 10? <laughs> right, now we have nobody. 15, maybe. But Mikey, I'm really glad we have you here today to kind of lead us through history class. You did, as a good professor, give us some homework for some documentaries to watch on slasher cinema. Oh, I did. I was, I've been jonesing here if you guys watched anything. I'm going to go on a limb and probably say I'm like a C- student on this homework. Mm, that's okay. But to kind of kick us off with this, just in case the term slasher doesn't ring with anybody, can you like tell us what is a slasher film? What is the slasher genre? So this is the part where my teacher, you know, he gets up off the edge of the desk and <laughs> runs a hand through his hair, goes up to the whiteboard, he pulls out that chalk, and he writes, what is a slasher film? And then he <laughs> underlines slasher. So perfect. You know, just for emphasis. To wake up those kids in the back. I'm glad you asked, Ben. Uh, a slasher film is a subgenre of horror films involving an often masked or rarely seen killer who stalks and dispatches a group of people, usually teens or young adults, and it follows a very specific set of tropes. Pop quiz, hotshot, would you like to uh, maybe guess? There are four tropes I've gotten written down here. Oh, oh, that's kind of fun. We get to do a quiz. I feel like there's always running and falling, but that may be way more specific than what you're looking for. We're looking for kind of broad strokes here. I will give you a hint. Two of them I mentioned in... My definition of what a slasher oh, I knew film is just moments ago. Dang it! You were too busy doodling in that sketchbook. I did, but it was a slasher though. Um, is the is the killer supernatural in nature? Uh, that's not on the list, but that is something that does happen. But okay, funnily enough, didn't really happen until later down the line in the slasher genre. Is it usually like chasing or stalking a person or a group of people? We'll lump that into, yes, you were, you were close enough. <laughs> close enough for horseshoes and hand grenades, right? Yes. So uh, a mass killer who is rarely seen and who kills a group in various and often elaborate ways. Elaborate, mm. okay. If someone expresses even a passing interest in sex, they're going to die. Oh, yes. 100%. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Main characters are often a group of teens or young adults, which I sort of mentioned, but they usually indulge in sex, drugs, and or alcohol. Oh. Uh, and if you do, woe be to you. <laughs> woe be to you. All right, because there you go. Because in the world of the slasher, this is an abstinence only if you want to live. Yeah. Is another trope the final girl? Yeah. Yes. Trope. Yeah, that Thank was going to be my next guess. Oh, killing it. She's the one who's usually not drinking or having yes. sex or yes. doing drugs. And is the final girl completely related to the Scream Queen or not necessarily? Are those kind of separate tropes? 
I yeah, I mean, pretty much Scream Queen is a title that was given to Jamie Lee Curtis is the mm. uh, genesis of that, her performance in Halloween. Yeah. Uh, and then later would go on to be in Prom Night and uh, Terror Train and Prom Night 2. Can't forget that classic. The Promening. Yeah, Prom Night 2, The Promening. <laughs> uh, the Revenge of the Corsage. What are we missing? Is it like an iconic villain? Is that what it is? Uh, that's kind of, that kind of gets lumped in with the whole master rarely seen a uh, Okay. They're in some form or another trapped in the location where they're being hunted. Bingo. Okay. Nicely done. 10 points to Gryffindor. Yes. Yeah, just like in real estate, it's location, location, location. (laughs) All of this usually happens in a secluded or isolated location, Mm. i.e. summer camp for Friday the 13th, as in terror train, a train. (laughs) An actual train. As in Chopping Mall, a shopping mall. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you're familiar with Chopping Mall. Chopping Mall. Well, we're going to get to that in chemistry class. That is, yeah, that's that's one of the great ones right there. And by great, I mean interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want the second best teacher you can get after Mikey about what he's about to dive in, Mikey prescribed to us. He assigned us three documentaries to try and watch. Before this episode, we've got Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue, The Evolution of the American Horror Film, In Search of Darkness, and Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of the Slasher Film. Mikey, can you kind of tell us about where this came from? This idea, this genre, this hot trend. Once again, Ben, I am just so glad you asked that question. (laughs) I'm a plant in the the class. Let's dive right in here. So the slasher's subgenre was extremely successful for most of the early to mid-80s and gave birth to some of the most iconic modern horror villains of all time. You may not have seen a single one of their movies, but I know that if I mention these names to probably both of you and most of your listeners, they'll know exactly who I mean. Freddy Krueger, Pinhead, Jason Voorhees, Chucky, and Michael Myers. Oh, yeah. All rose to prominence in the 80s, and before we can dive into the slasher film heydays, though, we need to take a look back at the origins. Yeah! Alright, now class, if you'd like to open up your uh, history book here, we're gonna go all the way back. Way back to the land of the late 19th century. Mm. We're going to France, ladies and gentlemen. Mm. A little place called La Fetiera du Grand Guinal. I am perfect at my pronunciation, and nothing the people on the internet can convince me otherwise. Or, simply better known as the Grand Guinal. The full title, though, translates to The Theater of the Great Puppet. From its opening in 1897 until its closing in 1962, that's a hell of a run, I think. Wow. That's long. Good for them. The theater specialized in naturalistic horror shows, which featured a distinct bleak worldview and gory special effects, particularly in their climaxes. The horrors depicted at the theater were generally not supernatural, which were kind of in vogue at the time, Hmm. Uh, but rather these plays often explored altered states like insanity, hypnosis, or panic. To heighten Hmm. the effect, the horror shows were often alternated with comedies, a lineup referred to at the time as hot and cold showers, which I think is an awesome... Yeah. But what a Name. roller coaster ride. Like, you go yeah. some horrifying thing, and they're like, hey, and here's a clown. Doop, doop, beep, Who's ready yeah. to laugh? Yeah, am I here in time for the comedy? Oh, no, that guy's losing his head. Yeah, and now that, yeah, right. Oh, wow. It's an emotional roller coaster. Sadly, though, in the years following World War II, audiences began to wane. 
The director at the time, uh, Charles Noonan, uh, said, Before the war, everyone felt what was happening on stage was impossible. And now that we know that these things, and worse, are possible in reality, nobody wants to see them. See, that's that person from Class of 80s High who answered and was like, you know what? There's too many real-life traumas. I don't need to watch them on screen. Well, I think that's a great point. You know, Alien, we talked about Alien so effective because it feels so real. But I think that's a basis of what makes slasher films so terrifying is, to your point, all this is like what the horrors of humanity itself does rather than being fantastical. You mean Alien, the slasher film? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, how many digits does a xenomorph have? How many slashers? I mean, if you think about it, what is it? I mean, they may not be young people, but it is a group of people in an isolated situation with a single killer stalking them and killing them one by one. And who's the final character? Oh, yeah. Wow. Good point. All right. Before we get deeper into the slasher origins, I think this brings up the whole, you know, World War II and what we want to be seen in our entertainment. I think that brings up an excellent point, not just about slasher films but about horror films in general because horror as a genre evolves i think a lot more than say action or drama or fantasy every few decades it seems to be another leap in what's scary Mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting to look back at the history of horror because then you get to see what audiences were scared of at the time. That's sort of a reflection of like what is going on in the world, right? Exactly. Yeah. What I've got here is not really so much of the world as it is America at the time, because I'm American. And why would I think about the world when there's America to think about? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I am American, and therefore I only know American history because that's all we teach in our schools. So, <laughs> that's a fair point. Uh, I'm sorry, but I have to just look there for the most part. So it should come as no surprise that since the very beginning of the motion picture, horror has always been a part of it. In the first 40 or so years of the medium, horror mostly focused on showing us wild and fantastic images, uh, like the trick films of Georges Méliès. He was a powerhouse of cinema at the time, and all of his stuff was genre. Wait, is it like the rocket into the eye of the moon? Yes, exactly. From the Earth to the Moon, that's him. Nice! Uh, He's featured prominently in the Martin Scorsese film Hugo. Beautiful movie. So good. Wonderful movie. Uh, Love letter to cinema. And his films were called trick films at the time because he used a lot of magic tricks and forced perspective, a lot of editing tricks, too, to make, you know, the impossible possible. Mm. After that, we have the German expressionistic movement of the early 20s. Uh, Universal monsters started coming out at the time uh, in the silent era. Uh, We had Lon Chaney, you know, his depiction of the Hunchback in Notre Dame, and uh, Phantom of the Opera. Oh, nice. Okay. Coming out of that German expressionistic movement, we have the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. That rings a bell. Yeah. uh, Nosferatu. Well, that rings a huge uh, bell. Which is the first ever screen adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, although it was an illegal one. (gasps) They did not have the rights at the time. In fact, lost a lawsuit to Bram Stoker's widow. Uh, mm. who demanded that all copies of the film be destroyed. What? And the fact that it survived is kind of a miracle. Wow. Because a few prints slipped through the cracks, and that's the only reason why that movie exists today, is because somebody was like, you know, maybe somebody will want to see this in the future. That is one of my favorite history nuggets in a long time. That's cool. Yeah. To touch back on the expressionistic movement, uh, the idea behind that was a lot of 
light and shadows set building to make the expressionistic kind of idea of something's not quite right here. This is different and odd from your everyday normal. Hmm. And so a lot of genre pieces were made in that style. Coming into the 40s, you start to see the first hints of slasher film come into horror uh, as elements start to be injected into various mystery noir and melodramas. Some of those movies include The Spiral Staircase in 1946, which tells the story of a serial killer targeting women with afflictions. The Seventh Victim in 1943 is a horror film noir hybrid uh, about a woman stumbling upon a satanic cult while looking for her missing sister. Talk about taking a wrong turn. Uh, in 1944, there's uh, The Lodger, which is an Alfred Hitchcock film, where a landlady suspects the man who's living in her attic to be Jack the Ripper. Oh, that's cool. That's kind of interesting, actually. I would like that's fascinating. Yeah. To be a slasher film, does a sharp object need to be at least one of the weapons of demise? See, that's something that is kind of debated oh okay it's not really debated it's a lot of people say you know it has to be it's called a slasher so therefore it has to be a knife or some sort of edge to tool right but i mean if jason Voorhees walked around with a hammer would it be any less of a slasher movie i don't think so yeah well you said the thing of like there was somebody killing people with afflictions i'm like well if you're poisoning people does that count as a slasher like i'm trying to learn what falls into the genre what doesn't I think it's mostly in the style in which it's made. Like, if it's about a single villain going about trying to sneakily kill people, then it's pretty likely it's going to fall into the slasher. But the idea of a slasher, it's not everybody's just getting, you know, stabbed with a knife. This guy gets stabbed with a knife, and I stab that guy with a knife, and I stab that guy with a knife. Okay. It's, you know, I threw that guy into a wood chipper, or I found this chainsaw and cut him up. Variety is the spice of life. (laughs) You know? You can't get too stale when you're a slasher villain. Keep it fresh. I like it. I mean, Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive is about trucks running into things. I I mean, the the short story is great, but the movie is not only a fantastic story in movie making, but it's just an insane movie. Yeah. Yeah. Wonder. Yeah. This would never get made in any era but the 80s. Right. So like, yeah, like Chuck's running into things or Chopping Mall, as I mentioned earlier, is about yep. robot sentries guarding this mall that shoot lasers and blast people. So I mean, yeah, but the mall was struck by lightning. So right? well, obviously everybody sense. knows lightning's at, the lightning has it out. For Look, humanity. if robots get struck by lightning, you can either become sentient like Johnny Five or mm-hmm. you become murder bots. Right. And and I mean, who's to say Johnny Five didn't feel a little bit of murder? He just never acted on it. Well, is it is the first one a sequel that they strap like a laser to his back and they try and make him a war weapon? Well, he starts off as one and then he goes the other direction. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They do. Yeah, yeah, he was weaponized. Speaking of robots. Okay, oh. You like that little segue? That was perfect. Nice. Uh, in the 50s, horror leaned in even harder into the fantastic and stranger elements of the genre. Obviously, the real world horrors of World War II were not too far behind. Teenagers were just, you know, becoming a thing. The idea of a group of young adults who've got driver's license and, you know, money to spend mm-hmm. suddenly became a marketing demographic that you would want to look at. Therefore, the 50s were all about two things, creature features and sci-fi horror. Mm. Oh, okay. Creature features, obviously, you've got them, the all the giant, giant the giant ants, um, yeah. all of the giant insect films. And then with the sci-fi horror stuff, you've got a lot of atomic horror. Godzilla being maybe the most prevalent. I mean, we yeah. did just end a war oh, by yeah. using nuclear bombs to destroy two cities. 
past that, we are we're getting into the sixties and uh, things are getting groovy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the horrors of World War Two are they're they're getting farther off there. Uh, most of those teenagers uh, in the fifties are a bit older now. Some of them had kids that are now growing older, and it's time for a little peace and love, baby. Okay, fascinated by this sub sub genre. We're we're looking at a time in America where. We're coming down, not really down, but we're leveling off from the prosperity and, you know, the silver line cloud of the 50s where, you know, there's a picket fence for everybody. And suddenly America is having a moral awakening. There's a increased attention to social justice. The civil rights movement is on the rise. And on top of all that, so is television, which was fledgling in the 50s, but now is in pretty much every home in the 60s. Mm. So what are we seeing on the nightly news? Selma, mm. uh, all the horrible police brutality that's followed any sort of working towards racial equality at the time. Mm-hmm. You're seeing hippies smoking dope and just trying to live their life. <laughs> how dare they? I know. How dare they want to do that? Enjoy life? Ridiculous. That's reflected in the horror genre and the fact that a lot of classics were kind of still being enjoyed. You've got that older audience still. Roger Corman, who is a famous low-budget filmmaker, would pop out, you know, like two films in a month uh, using the same set, the same actors, same director. That's insane. He'd have them film back to back. Yeah, it's. Uh, but also gave, you know, he gave a start to some of the most prevalent and influential directors still working today. Um, you've got Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese. They all started working for him. Uh, Joe Dante, who went on to do Gremlins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the 60s are important to slasher films as a whole for two films. Any guess on what those are? Psycho. And Peeping Tom. You are correct. Thank you for reading your notes. Yay, Cliff Notes! <laughs> so, suddenly men are the monsters, and no other two films inhabit that as much as Peeping Tom and Psycho. Suddenly are the monsters. Ladies, am I right? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Peeping Tom at the time was shunned, reviled by critics. The film revolves around a serial killer who murders women while using a portable film camera to record their dying expressions of terror. Oh, wow. One of the tropes I meant to hit on but forgot was that a lot of slasher films use POV or point of view shots, which means the camera is considered to be the eyes of the killer. Uh, You're seeing through their eyes, the audience is placed square in the action and, you know, often feels involved and creeped out by it. I noticed that. I want to come back to that in chemistry because that is a big headline question from me. The film introduced many slasher tropes such as POV shots from the killer. Murders with an unusual murder weapon. In this case, it is a tripod that the camera is mounted on that has a knife at the end of it. Right. Jeez. And a likable final girl. Oh, yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, Peeping Tom was a bit too ahead of its time, and its depiction of violence and its quote-unquote lurid sexual content made it into a controversial film on initial release. And the critical backlash heaped on the film was a major factor in finishing Powell's career as a director in the United Kingdom. One critic later remembered that at the film's premiere, nobody in the audience went to shake the hand of director Michael Powell 
because they were so disgusted by the film oh, he had made. Oh, that's so cold. Oh, come it's on. It's pretty crazy because watching Nobody. it today, I mean, it does deal with some adult themes, obviously. For sure. But compared to a lot of modern horror films, it is quite tame. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Holy cow. The other notable film is Psycho, directed mm. by Alfred Hitchcock. Wee, wee. Uh, it is a classic. A lot of people have seen it. The plot is pretty easy. Uh, you center on a woman who is on the run, ends up in a motel off of the highway, and gets into trouble. Uh, most of the film is centered on her sister and her boyfriend, who later turn up at the same hotel to search for her. Any guesses why Psycho was successful while Peeping Tom was not? Does it have to do with Anthony Perkins and his portrayal? I mean, he. I mean, he gives an amazing performance. It's one of the most iconic in horror. Well, there's not the sexuality in it that I recall, and there's not a bunch of prostitutes getting killed. There are not prostitutes getting killed, but there is a lot of sexual. I want to say innuendo. Uh, it's suggested quite a bit. Mm. I think it all comes down to style and narrative. Okay. Mm. As far as style goes, Psycho. It's a Hitchcock film. He loves to move the camera to find inventive new ways of showing you things. And, I mean, he's a master filmmaker. His movies feel like movies. Mm-hmm. It's also black and white. You know, it's that little dividing line of this could happen to me slash this mm. is just a film. Whereas Peeping Tom, it goes for very uncomfortable realism uh, in the way that it's shot and made its performances. And... It's a full-color film, so there's no kind of hiding from the blood in it. Whereas, you know, in Psycho, there's blood, but... You're like, that could be chocolate. So, narrative. In Peeping Tom, the main character is the killer. I mean, you know who it is right away, and what the story is about is his motivations and his crimes. So, there's no mystery, there's no who's doing this. You're not being told the story, you are seeing the story unfold in front of you. You're a part of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially with those POV shots. I mean, they're meant to make you uncomfortable. They're meant to make you culpable to the crimes that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Psycho, a lot of it is about, is it Norman killing these people? Is it his mother up in the house? What's oh, going on with his mother? Uh, interesting. There's a lot more going on in Psycho, narratively, than in Peeping Tom. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So not only do we have Psycho and Peeping Tom, which were very influential to the slasher genre, they both... Also came out in 1960, the same year, right at the beginning of the decade. Later on in the decade, in Italy, we've got a little something called giallo. A giallo is the Italian term designating murder mystery horror thrillers. They were popular from the late 60s to the late 70s, and the word is derived from the Italian word for yellow, which were a series of cheap paperback mystery and crime thriller novels with yellow covers that were popular in Italy in the 20s and 30s. Uh, This particular style of Italian-made film usually blends the atmosphere and suspense of thriller fiction with elements of horror, such as slasher violence, and involves a mysterious killer whose identity is not revealed until the final act of film. Any of that sound familiar? Maybe just a little... There's very clear parallels between the Giallo films of the 60s and 70s and the modern 80s slasher. Right. So we've got Psycho, we've got Peeping Tom, and we've got the Giallo. All of this is going to come to a head in the 70s, where we're going to see the real birth of slasher films as we know it today. 
All right, so we're coming into the 70s. We're fresh out of the 60s. Guess what? We just lost our first conflict. Uh, Vietnam War didn't go mm, so great, guys. That's so hot. Seen that coming. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> the peace and love hippie movement fizzled out. The final nail in that coffin would be uh, the Manson family murders of five people, including actress Sharon Tate in 1969. Mm. So, you know, just a nice little button note on the 60s. Mm. The 70s were also a time that serial killers in America started to rise in prominence. I mean, you've got Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Berkowitz, Mullen, Bianchi, and Kemper. I mean, all Mm. those guys were active and or caught at the time in the 70s. Uh, So their crimes were filling the newspapers and television. We had two oil shortage crises on the horizon uh, and, you know, inflation to look forward to as well. Uh, so needless to say, the spirits of America are a little low. <laughs> not, not the brightest time in our history. No. And surprisingly, unlike most times where if people are feeling down or there's kind of a mass depression or, you know, something horrible happens, people turn to fantasy. You know, you want to escape. In the 70s, it's strange because what happens? They go the complete opposite direction, and we get the rise of Grindhouse and Exploitation films. Mm. Grindhouse and Exploitation, you know, they sound exactly what they sound like. Honestly, Grindhouse is a way to describe Exploitation films that would play in movie houses that, you know, they wouldn't play them anywhere else, and they call them Grindhouses because, you know, they just played them back to back to back to back to back. I was wondering where the term grindhouse originated. I didn't know if it had – in my head, I was thinking grind was just like it had to do with something violent, you know, like the movie. You know, these are like – they I don't know, grind people down I to mean, a yeah, pole. technically. I mean, you, you're, you're showing these, you know, real low budget, not nice films, we'll say. Yeah. There's no Bambi. <laughs> you don't go to a grindhouse to see a double feature of Bambi and E.T. <laughs> right. Two exploitation films, though, I do want to talk about because they are very important to slashers – I would say you probably heard of one of them. The very first one we're going to talk about is 1972's Last House on the Left. Oh, yeah, okay. Which is the title yep. you're probably familiar with. For sure. And the other one is 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Of which, course. honestly, I think the title for that film is probably what turns people away from it. You're either going to be immediately attracted to it or immediately disgusted right. by There's it. There's no guessing. I mean, it's a hell of a title, right? Yeah. Like, you know exactly what that movie's about. But at the same time, it's probably going to scare away anybody who's not going to be interested in that title. Yeah, exactly. Nobody sits down and they're like, wait a minute, this takes place in Texas? There's chainsaws in this movie? Oh my god. <laughs> People are getting massacred? <laughs> I wish someone had warned me. So, Last House on the Left, the first one, 1972. It's written and directed by Wes Craven. It's his directorial debut. Oh, now, Wes. either of you know Wes Craven. Where does he fit into the slasher? Well, too big, really. He fits in for Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep. And I believe Scream. Uh, he does. Nice. The film follows a teenager who is, let's say, trigger warning here, uh, abducted, raped, and tortured by a fugitive family on her 17th birthday. Uh, so you could say there's probably some shades of Manson in that, mm, for sure. Okay. But when the attackers seek refuge in her home, they face the vengeance of her parents. Clearly, this is not a nice movie. It's not one I would recommend. But Wes Craven did go on to create Nightmare on Elm Street. And the producer of this film, Sean S. Cunningham, would go on to direct the very first Friday the 13th film. 
So it does bear mentioning. That sounded familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving on to the other influential film of the 70s, one that I actually do recommend, despite its terrifying name, uh, is 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is directed by Toby Hooper from a story uh, and screenplay that he co-wrote. The film follows a group of friends who fall victim to a family of cannibals while visiting their old family farmstead. Oh, God. Uh, the film was marketed as being based on true events, while really that's kind of just marketing jargon. There was a little bit of inspiration by the crimes of Ed Gein. Despite that you know, terrifying name, despite how horrible the description of the story sounds, you do get many of the same tropes as the slasher genre. You have a group of young adults, an isolated setting, a masked killer... Inventive kills and a final girl. Zeroing in, getting close. Yeah, the big difference though is that while most 80s slasher films, in fact, I would say 99% of them, are about entertaining you, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is solely focused on scaring your pants off. Mm. Uh, That movie is just. Oh, it's very successful at doing it too. It is just. It is a heart attack from the first frames to the end of it. I mean, you. Don't get a chance to rest. That movie is relentless. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if you're into horror movies, you've probably seen it. If not, I do recommend it because while it is called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and it is about a family of cannibals, the film is actually largely bloodless. There's not really any gore, so to speak of, because they didn't have the budget for it. And in fact, the film was shot in hopes of securing a PG rating at the time. Wow. What? (laughs) I'm sorry, murder, cannibals, PG rating. Okay. I mean, most all of the violence is either obscured or suggested. Mm. So despite of, or perhaps in response to, uh, the prominence of all these gritty, down and dirty exploitation films of the 70s, we also have this kind of era where we have some of the best horror films that were ever made. Mm. Mm. I mean, you've got The Wicker Man and The Exorcist in 1973. Mm -hmm. After mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre, often considered one of the best horror films of all time. The greatest horror comedy ever made, Young Frankenstein. Oh, Oh, I do love that movie so much. Mel Brooks. You have Jaws and Rocky Horror Picture Show in 1975. Fantastic. In 1976, you have The Omen. Oh, yeah, Damien. So we have two final films we need to talk about. Is one of them Halloween? John Carpenter's uh, one Halloween? One of those films is Halloween, 1978. Now, I, I don't think I know the other one, but I'm just going to throw out, is it like The Hills Have Eyes? No, it is not. And in fact, okay. I don't consider The Hills Have Eyes to be a slasher film. Okay, okay. I lodged that one in exploitation as well. You did give us a list of movies to watch, so there is another one on your list that I'm wondering there if that's There is, and it, it came out the same year, 1974, as Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Young Frankenstein. Well, some might say, I'm dreaming of a Black Christmas. Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, we'll have more on him in a little bit after we talk about why this movie is so important. It follows a group of sorority sisters who received threatening phone calls and are eventually stalked and murdered by a deranged killer at the start of holiday break. People love to credit Halloween with being the first true slasher film. It's simply not true. Black Christmas came out a full four years before Halloween, and it hits all the same beats. 
You have the main characters, group of young adults, a lot of them indulging in sex, drugs, and alcohol. They do so in a secluded and isolated location. A master rarely seen assailant who kills a group in various and often elaborate ways. Mm. POV shots from the killer. Uh, and a final girl. It even has a holiday setting, which Halloween later would go on to have as well. Yeah. I do want to say, indulging in alcohol, the main woman who survives for a good portion of the movie, like the drunkenness yes. is to a ridiculous level in the movie. <gasps> Especially because everyone around her is just having a good time. Are you talking about the den mother? Uh, no, she's... Gr- oh, yeah, no. Okay, she's also a raging the den alcoholic. Mother. Yeah, the den mother is the raging alcoholic. Who has liquor stored all over the sorority house that just she just keeps pounding back. And she's hilarious. She's great. She's one of the best <laughs> yeah, characters she's, in the she's got. She's the comic relief, really, of the film. And she's got a great running gag of right. always looking for her cat. Yes, but the main, the main sorority sister is just like hammered like speech yes. slurring uh, margo movie. kidder thank you plays, yes yes oh, right. uh, would she's later lois lane. would later go on to be lois lane superman yep. oh. right in superman uh she's not the final girl though no she's not she's too drunk to make it that far also i'd like to point your attention to a little horror film not a slasher but slasher adjacent i would say uh 1979's when a stranger calls oh that's so good what's a trope that that movie the call is coming from inside the house. 1974 Black Christmas, five years beforehand, features that exact same trope. Thank uh, you. That's what I wrote down in my notes. Is this where that phrase comes from? Is this the movie that first yes, did, The Call's Inside the House? I mean, it's that's an urban legend that you know has been around since the 60s about a babysitter. Uh, while as When a Stranger Calls is kind of the most concrete, faithful adaptation of it. Yeah. The actual phrase of the call is coming from inside the house originates with Black Christmas. I got chills in the movie when that happened. I was like, oh my That's god, this great. is okay. Black Christmas is one of my favorite slasher films of all time. Right, so the television premiere of Black Christmas was delayed. So it was supposed to come on a Saturday night, January 28th, 1978, is when this movie was supposed to come out on this NBC's weekly special Saturday yeah. Night at the Movies. However, two weeks before that date, two college kids at Chi Omega Sorority House at FSU were murdered in their sleep in their sorority house. And two other college students in that sorority house were also attacked but survived the attack by none other than one Ted Bundy. And the governor of Florida calls NBC and they're like, look, it's kind of a sensitive time about murders in sorority (laughs) houses. Could you not? do this please and nbc is like okay and so they they give um another option for that night to the tri-state area so alabama georgia and florida they give like a different movie what was it doc savage the man of bronze to play oh, instead man. because the tri-state was just broiling with this ted bundy murder in a sorority house wow huge you know, fast forward to today though they would just ask to show it twice <laughs> Double no, feature they, that movie with itself. They run a full day marathon like a Christmas yeah, Story. Exactly. They just run a full day marathon. Oh, it's it's real funny. You should mention that movie, Chris, because <gasps> that brings us back to the director of this film, Bob Clark, oh, ooh, who would later go on to direct a Christmas Story. No oh, kidding. No yes, that was not a setup. I just said yeah. that. That is hilarious. Beautiful. 
So he has, in my opinion, two classic Christmas films under his belt. (laughs) That's amazing. It makes a pretty interesting double feature. Yeah. (laughs) Different tone, different stories. Yeah, you got the hot, cold showers, man. (laughs) Hot, cold showers. Well, you got to make them laugh and make them cry. That's amazing. Okay, so uh, following Black Christmas in 1978, we have Halloween. I'm pretty sure everybody, regardless of whether or not, you like slasher films or horror films, you are familiar with Halloween. You could probably tell me who the antagonist is. You could tell me that Jamie Lee Curtis starred in it. And you could probably tell me at least a close idea to what you think the plot is. Scored, directed, and co-written by John Carpenter. The film Mm -hmm. stars Jamie Lee Curtis in her film debut and was the first of the four films that would turn her into a scream queen. Mm. As you There's only about four Halloweens? Uh no, there are let me see here. Ten Halloweens, I believe, oh at this my point. Oh god. Uh, we'll get we'll get into that because not only are we looking at a new scream next year, but I believe in one or two weeks we're looking at a new Halloween film Wait, as well. No, I saw H two O, so there are at least twenty Halloweens. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that works, and I'm pretty sure that one was about Michael Myers versus sharks, right? That was what the H two O was. Exactly. About water. Exactly. The plot tells about a mental patient who is committed to a sanitarium for murdering his teenage sister on Halloween night when he was six years old. Fifteen years later, he escapes and returns to his hometown, where he stalks a female babysitter and her friends while under pursuit by his psychiatrist. Mm. A very simple premise. In fact, I believe the original title for the film was going to be The Babysitter Killer. Very on the nose. That's until... John Carpenter's co-writer and producer on the film, Deborah Hill, realized that no film, no horror film at least, had been called Halloween yet. Hmm. So why not set the film at Halloween and run with it? Good call, Deborah. Good call, Deborah. (laughs) I don't think we'd be sitting here talking about Babysitter Killer H2O. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, probably not. Although, what if that was like a crossover of Halloween and Jaws? (laughs) Would watch 100%. Yeah, you know you. Halloween is that? Halloween. Halloween. That's good. <laughs> oh man, Halloween does something though that Black Christmas didn't, and that is introduce a killer who becomes more popular than the film itself. Yeah. Oh. Everybody knows Michael Myers. Halloween. He's the guy from Halloween. Yep. If the Universal Classic Monsters, which were based on creatures of folklore, were the most recognizable and popular horror villains of their era, then the slasher killers of the 80s were the modern equivalent. So now we're finally here. It's the 80s, everybody. Yay! Tubular! 80s. It's known for being a period of excess and deregulation, as you guys talked about. <laughs> you'd think the films of the time reflect that, and you'd be right. So why were slasher films so popular in the 80s? I believe that it's for one simple fact, and that it governs pretty much everything that was so awesome about the 80s. It was just about having fun. Mm. They were simple, they were often dumb, but they were escapism. I mean, yes, it's a scary movie, but, you know, it's a guy in a mask with a machete teleporting all over the place as jason was wont to do in some of his later films <laughs> oh yeah uh, freddy was a dream warrior a dream demon yeah nothing like that could ever happen to us 
So we get to be scared, but we also get to have fun. I like it. I'll support that premise. I'm into it. Uh, And I think supported in that is the way that in modern day now, we look back at like the serious films of the 80s and how they were often underappreciated at the time. I mean, look at The Shining and The Thing, both horror films, but at the time when they came out, were considered, you know, these movies aren't very good and didn't do great at either the box office or with critics. But as time went on, they were reassessed. And while I still kind of agree with the original assessment of The Shining, I will agree that The Thing is one of the best horror films ever made. I love Mm. The Thing. I rave about that movie all the time. Any chance I can. And it's not just with horror. I mean, look at Blade Runner. I mean, when that first came out, not a huge reception for it, but... Now it's considered one of the greatest sci-fi films of all time. Yeah, right. Uh, The comparison of slasher icons to universal classic monsters, I believe, is really spot on because they served up the same kind of fantastical escapist entertainment. Not everybody saw it that way, though. You see the election of Ronald Reagan as the 40th president of the United States in 1981 Mm -hmm. drew America into a new age of conservatism that ushered in concerns of rising violence on film. Mm -hmm. The slasher film was just starting to get at the height of its commercial power, and it became the center of a political and cultural maelstrom. Just say no, kids. Just say no. (laughs) I mean, you know, why worry about the environment, poverty, or racial inequality when we could be regulating what's deemed to be morally wrong in our art? (laughs) (laughs) So despite the graphic excess of the exploitation grindhouse film of the 70s, slasher films of the 80s are mostly toned down due to a lot of aggressive and restrictive censoring by the MPAA. Mm. Uh, It's funny, though, because if you look at those tropes, those slasher tropes we talked about, do drugs, dead. Drink alcohol, dead. Have sex, dead. If anything, the MPAA and all of these people up on their moral high horses should have hopped on down and been cheering these films on because, I mean, what's that movie saying? But don't drink, don't do drugs, don't have sex. Right. right. Now, despite all of this pushback, there was just no stopping the subgenre juggernaut. The years from 1978 to 1984 are considered the golden age of slasher films. So let me read off just a few of the titles to slash across the silver screen in the first four years of our decade. Mm. 1980, we had the first film of the Friday the 13th franchise. Mm-hmm. The film was directed by the aforementioned Sean S. Cunningham and is one of the cornerstones of 80s slasher pantheon. It spawned 10 sequels, seven of which were released in the 80s. Now, of those 10, that also includes the 2003 Freddy vs. Jason spinoff that pitted him against another cornerstone franchise villain, Freddy Krueger. Oh, so good. I have so many questions that's, about that one. That's coming back in uh, yeah, contemporary sure. culture. Yep. Ugh. That same year, Jamie Lee Curtis would return to the genre twice more for Prom Night and the excellent Terror Train. Uh, in 1981, we got The Burning, which is very similar to kind of Friday the 13th, set in a summer camp, but more based on urban legend. Personal favorites of mine, My Bloody Valentine and The Fun House, and both Friday the 13th and Halloween saw their first sequels with Friday the 13th Part 2, which was the very first time Jason was the killer in the films. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Halloween 2. Uh, Halloween 2 is noteworthy because it introduces the idea that Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, was Michael Myers' long-lost sister. Mm. What? Doesn't it also start, like, right away? Like, Halloween yes, 1 ends, it, Halloween it literally picks up right where Halloween 1 ends, Halloween yeah. 2 begins. That's cool. I like that. It's a fun double feature. Yeah. 
1982, we got Alone in the Dark, whose plot followed a family uh, who were besieged by four escaped mental patients during a blackout. That's terrifying. Uh, That one's kind of fun because you get not only one masked killer, you get four. Four for the price of one. Pretty much, yeah. So if you're a fan of slashers and you haven't seen Alone in the Dark, I recommend that one. Uh, We also got the third sequels to Friday the 13th with Friday the 13th 3D, which was shot in 3D and is pretty awesome. Oh, I did watch that from your assignments. And it just says Friday the 13th Part 3. It doesn't say 3D, mm-hmm. but there's so many times they, like, point an object straight at the camera. And you're like, I think this was – I think this might have been done in 3D. Yeah, it was shot in 3D. And, in fact, it used kind of a burgeoning 3D technology, which didn't require the red-blue glasses from the 50s. It was just an wow. actual killer on stage in the theater pointing things at people. <laughs> it's great. No, this is, like, a genesis of, like, the real D 3D that we had – when we were teenagers. Part 3 in 3D uh, is notable because Jason gets his hockey mask for the first time in the series. I mentioned that in our Miracle on Ice episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. Which is not a great holder for nacho cheese. (laughs) Not a great (laughs) nacho cheese thing. The third sequel to Halloween, or I guess second sequel to Halloween, the third film in the franchise, though, is interesting because it doesn't follow Michael Myers. The original idea that John Carpenter had for the Halloween franchise was to make a new film every year called Halloween that was about a different story. So the Michael Myers films would be their own thing. And then with Halloween 3, we got this weird kind of sci-fi horror detective movie about a mask company using shards of Stonehenge in their mask construction that they would sell to children who would watch a special on Halloween evening, which would trigger... I'm losing you guys, aren't I? We're in the 80s, so we know that cocaine factors into yeah, all of lots this, of cocaine. and it shows. But long story short, the Halloween special that they'd be watching would trigger these shards of Stonehenge in their masks and turn their head into snakes and insects. I was just Very about to finish your plot. sentence. Yeah, yeah exactly. I almost finished that, that sentence for you. No into snakes and insects, of course. Yeah. Duh. I mean, you do a bale of cocaine, That'll trope. a lot of things start to make sense. Oh, absolutely. Later on, though, Michael Myers would be back for Halloween 4. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Yeah, right. Uh, 1983, we had the return of the genre granddaddy with Psycho 2. 1983 also gave us cult favorite Sleepaway Camp, which would go on to spawn three more sequels of its own. I know you want to do mm. just an entire episode about Sleepaway Camp. I would love to do an entire episode <laughs> of Sleepaway Camp. That film is, you know the other word I want to use, Bat-guano. but I can't. Bat-guano. It is Bat-guano Bat-guano crazy. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that movie is it also features one of my favorite insults of all time which i can't say on here either right it, it goes along the lines of eat guano and die and the response is eat guano and live <laughs> which i think is just such a brilliant response really good. uh 1984 waning box office returns for the subgenre caused studios to slow down on making any new slasher films but this final year of the Golden Age would still prove to be one of its best. Friday the 13th had its fourth film, The Final Chapter. It's considered by many fans of the series to be the best film in the franchise. It also promised to be the end of Jason Voorhees, and indeed it was, <gasps> until 1986. Of course he comes right back. He, he came back for Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Hmm. Uh, we also got the controversial but awesomely named Killer in a Santa Suit, Silent Night, Deadly Night. 
<laughs> which yes. I would also put up there as Bat Guano Insane. <laughs> By far the biggest development for the subgenre, though, was the birth of arguably the most recognizable slasher villain of all, Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare mm. on Elm Street. Yeah. Mm. The first installment in the franchise concerns four teenagers living on one street in the fictitious town of Springfield, Ohio. These teenagers are attacked and killed in their dreams, and thus killed in reality. They are attacked by a killer with a burned visage and a bladed leather glove. Directed and written by Wes Craven, who we talked about earlier, the basis of this film was inspired by several newspaper articles printed in the Los Angeles Times in the 1970s about Hmong refugees who, after fleeing the United States because of war and genocide in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam, suffered disturbing nightmares and refused to sleep. Some of the men died in their sleep soon after, and medical authorities called the phenomenon Asian Death Syndrome. Hmm. So technically, Nightmare on Elm Street is based on a true story. Wow. That's wild. Wow, okay. Eat that, Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. (laughs) The appearance of Freddy Krueger himself was inspired by a homeless person that Craven saw one day outside of his apartment as a child. Uh, And his name comes from a kid that used to bully him. Uh, While it does follow all the slasher tropes, uh, it does bring something new to the table, though, with its fantasy and supernatural elements that are all present in the nightmare sequences. Robert England as Freddy Krueger is absolutely perfect. His performance is one of those iconic horror performances of all time, I think. Mm. You can't have Freddy Krueger without Robert Englund. And the new movie proved it. Yeah, as much as I love Jackie Earl Haley, and he was probably the best choice you could have had that wasn't Robert England, it's not Jackie Earl Haley that brings that movie down, though. It's just a boring movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. With the golden age over, the most theatrical films in the latter half of the 80s were sequels to earlier successes. 85, we had Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, which is the fifth film, not featuring Jason, uh, the only one other than the first one. We had the fascinating Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Mm. That's a whole episode unto itself. Oh my god, that movie. Yeah. Uh, in 1986, we got Psycho 3, the insane killer robot slasher Chopping Mall, yes. which I think we'll be hearing more about from Chris. Texas Chainsaw Massacre decided to get in on the sequel fun with the absolutely bonkers Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. They decided to go for a horror comedy feel with that one. It works and it doesn't. It's a really strange movie. File that one under Bat Guano. Insane. <laughs> We're going to need that tag on a lot of these posts. Yeah. Sure. And Jason Voorhees rose from the grave to kill and kill again and again. In Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. He just <sighs> die. 1987 brought us the third Nightmare on Elmstream film, The Dream Warriors. A lot of people cite that one as their favorite. That's, uh, that's kind of the turning point for Freddy Krueger. Where he becomes less scary and more fun. A lot more wisecracking. Sassy Freddy. Sassy Freddy is, yeah, he's born in that. 1987 was also the birth of Hellraiser. Pinhead comes onto the scene. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm, Cinnabites. 1988, we have Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. You could describe that film as basically Jason versus Carrie. Uh, it is Jason taking on a psychically inclined teenage girl. Interesting. Yep. I would watch that. Yep. It's a weird one. Uh, it's it's also notable for being the very first film in the franchise that Kane Hodder, stuntman and actor Kane Hodder, takes over the role of Jason. Yep. Uh, he would play him in parts 7, 8, 9, and 10. Yeah. Um, 
Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, would follow the Warriors. Most of what it is is a retread of the third one. It's got some fun kills, but not my favorite in the series. Yeah. Uh, Halloween 4 is the return of Michael Myers. In fact, it is called Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers. <laughs> uh, that one is actually kind of my favorite in the series, almost. I think it hits the feeling of fall and Halloween the best. Sleepaway Camp had its first sequel with Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers. Oh, my God. Uh, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 came out, and uh, 88 was the birth of Chucky. Child's mm. Play. Nice. I That is another slasher film I highly recommend to people who are not into slasher films, because it's very much a thriller than it more than it is a slasher film. Yeah. Like, yes, it's about a doll that's possessed with the spirit of a serial killer trying to kill people, but it's very suspenseful, and the performances and kind of set pieces in it are a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, concur. Uh, 1989, final year of the 80s. We get Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland, which was oh shot back-to-back with Sleepaway Camp 2, I might add. Stop making those movies. <laughs> <laughs> And closing out the 80s, we have the Wes Craven-directed Shocker, which is about an inmate on death row who gets killed in the electric chair, who also somehow doesn't die, but has electric powers. Ah, sure. that's the inspiration for the electricity gremlin in Gremlins 2, the new batch. Oh, exactly. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's in the movie. It's in, it's in. Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. If we're being really honest, it's all diminishing returns with every slasher series part five has some very interesting gothic inspiration Mm. with a lot of what's going on in it but once again not the best and friday the 13th part eight jason takes manhattan Manhattan. which is such a cop out of a title because really it should be friday the 13th part eight jason on a boat and then at the end we see manhattan as i say jason takes a cruise i think yeah jason takes a cruise yeah No, that sounds terrible. And it's the final film of the Friday the 13th franchise, because after that, the rights to Jason would be sold to New Line Cinema, but not the name Friday the 13th, which is why in 1993, we got Jason Goes to Hell, The Final Friday. Mm. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. And then Jason X, X, which was the 10th film in the series. And then Freddy vs. Jason. And Freddy vs. Jason. So they could make movies using all the characters and everything that came well, out of no, it. No, the only thing that New Line Cinema bought was the character Jason. What? So past characters, including Tommy Jarvis, who is the main character of Fridays 4, 5, and 6, the yin to Jason's yang, never appeared again because... New Line Cinema did not buy the rights to Tommy Jarvis. They only bought the rights to Jason Voorhees. Okay, that's kind of an interesting... Okay, all right. Yeah. Eventually, in 2009, they would go on to co-produce, and I believe co-finance, a Friday the 13th remake, which is actually really solid as far as horror remakes go. Okay. But with that, we are wrapped up with the slasher film of the 80s. Class adjourned. With that final countdown, I mean, you can definitely see why... The 80s were the heyday of the slasher movies. There's so many. And just like the sequels, just keep coming. (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, Chris, any final thoughts on history class? No, I am really excited to talk more about these in chemistry class. I think we're set. Let's stay together. 
Nobody do any drugs or alcohol. Uh, try not to be promiscuous on the way, and let's go down the hallway Wait, to chemistry. I heard a noise. Let me go investigate no, by no, myself. No, no, yeah, I'm just gonna I'll go outside right and smoke this right now. I'll be back. <laughs> I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> okay, this is Ben. I'm all by myself in chemistry class. Chris and Mikey have not come back yet. I'm sure there's nothing bad in this closet. I'm just going to open it and... Oh, thank God! Nothing going on in here. (coughs) (coughs) You guys are totally going to die. So I want to kick off chemistry. I'm going to take a page out of Chris's notebook uh, because he always has a good way to kick off chemistry here. The two of you, what is your earliest memory of encountering any 80s slasher property? I don't know that I know an earliest memory, but I'll tell you one that really stands out for me. And that is the movie I mentioned earlier, Maximum Overdrive. When this movie was out in the theater, my mom took my brother and I to oh, go see. so lucky. Maximum Overdrive. Oh, in the theater. And I remember we went up to the ticket counter, my mom, three tickets for Maximum Overdrive. And she's like, uh, should they be going to see this movie? Amazing. And my mom points to my brother and says... He's not going to be bothered by it. She points to me and says, if he is, he'll just close his eyes. If that's not an 80s mom, that's yeah. I don't know what is, and I loved it. And I totally love that movie. So I don't think it's my earliest movie experience, but that's one that stands out in my mind that we went and saw it in a theater. Oh, yeah. So good. That's awesome. Mikey? My parents, unlike Chris's parents, were good parents. And they didn't let me watch horror movies. No, no, they weren't. Uh, my mom, though, managed a blockbuster video what? when I was a kid. Yes. And thus your fascination with movies. Everything. Oh, so much. Awesome. So while I was not allowed to watch the movies, I was allowed to sneak away every time we were in Blockbuster and go to that forbidden oh. aisle of horror films oh, and no. just oogle all the box art of all the movies i never got to see until i was older yeah okay but really it was yeah just box art on those vhs tapes just so cool i have to say i remember going to blockbuster as well and going to that aisle and just that's where i saw april fool's day where she's hiding the knife behind her back that's where we saw shopping mall i'm pretty sure i rented shopping mall because i saw it at (laughs) blockbuster was like Oh my god, I like going to malls. I want to see this movie. Was it the robot hand holding the bloody shopping bag? It's the bloody shopping yep. bag, and maybe there's even an arm sticking yep. out of it. Oh yeah. Ben, how about Which you? Which is like a whole other nostalgia thing we could do another podcast on, but I, I love the idea like of when we were kids going to a movie rental place, the rolling the die with no pre-knowledge of these things, both on video games and movies, that you were largely yeah. picking based on box art. And that yeah. was it. Like there were video games, especially video games. Yeah. There weren't video game trailers to go watch and read all the reviews. No Rotten Tomatoes. No IMDb. No. It was yep. like the front cover box art, maybe three sentences on the back, and two gameplay yep. shots. And same with movies. And what a dice roll! And it was always like yeah. A cool and you, you asked the people working there too. You know, is this any good? Right. That's true. Absolutely, I love that. Mine. It was fall. I was very little, and my parents has gone to a party, and my older brother was babysitting me. And I recall he had a friend over. I cannot remember any details about the friend, but I know that he wasn't alone. And I was supposed to be up in bed in my room. And they were downstairs <laughs> watching a movie. And I crept down the stairs. I was probably five, four or five. Did you spider walk down exactly, the stairs? Like yeah. head first. I had four foot long black hair. <laughs> no, so I'm coming down. And the, the only image I remember on my 
that's burned into the back of my eyes is a jack-o'-lantern on the screen zooming mm-hmm. in which is the opening of halloween yeah and i remember being so scared i was behind the couch that they were sitting on they didn't know i was there yet peering over i gasped and I just remember my brother screaming because I'm like right <laughs> behind him at the start of Halloween. And I was so scared. Did you scare him or was he mad that you were there? We were equally terrified. And he was like, come oh, on, okay. come on. He was so angry. <laughs> he was so angry. So we talked about this a little bit through history class. When we finally reached back out to Mike and we're like, all right, we do slashers of the 80s. But we're going to need a little bit of pre-class work, some summer school what are the high and tight movies we need to watch to really be ready for this? So here's what you gave us. Psycho, mm-hmm. Peeping Tom, Black Christmas, Halloween, The First Three, Friday the 13th, The First Nightmare on Elm Street, The First Child's Play, and The First Sleepaway Camp is what we watched. Oh, that's the old list of like, these are the essentials. Right. And I, I am here to happily say I've watched all of these per yeah? your guidance. I'd only seen Halloween wow. and Psycho beforehand. You get a gold star. So I caught up. I caught up best I could in the time that we agree this. But you don't have to stay within that list. But just talking Slash of the 80s, you guys already have a bunch you've talked about. But let's dive in. Like, do you have a a favorite one or two properties or movies (sighs) for both of you that really stick out? I mean, I love Nightmare on Elm Street. I know I've talked about it on a couple different episodes. There is a fantastic documentary, Never Sleep Again. Yeah. It's like four amazing hours. I was going to say, it's like four hours, isn't it? Yeah, I have it. But it takes you through every single movie in the franchise Mm -hmm. up to Freddy versus Jason. It doesn't get the new reboot Nightmare on Elm Street, but it gives you everything else. And it has Wes is in it. It has um, Bob, guy, I can't remember his last name, but he's like the New Line Cinema. Bob Shea. Thank you, Bob Shea. All the people behind New Line are, are pretty much there. And then a bunch of actors, including, of course, Heather Langenkamp, who plays Nancy. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I loved Freddy. It's so cool to see everything that went behind. And Mike, you mentioned so many of these. Many things that went behind the creation of the story and the character. Yeah. Down to even why he chose red and green as the stripes <sighs> yeah, on the shirt. Yeah, because visually it's, it does something with your brain where you can't what like they don't want to coexist in the same wavelength or something like in your visual system your ganglion cells each cell can only fire for two opponent colors and Mm. it's it can either fire for one or the other and red and green are opponent colors so basically the whole (laughs) idea is it's like your ganglion cells are warring (laughs) in your brain for like i see green i see red who knew christmas was such a nightmare for everybody (laughs) it's funny that they worried so much about his sweater when he's you know completely covered in burns and has a knife hand right right exactly like who's looking at the sweater but freddie to me was the best and when you mentioned the second movie the funny thing is is there's a lot of homoeroticism is just probably the best way to put it for the second movie and they all swear making this movie that they had no clue what was going on. And there's you almost just have to watch this documentary because they're all having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. And just laughing at like, yeah, what were we doing? We didn't know what was going on here. Well, the whole movie is a you know parallel for being afraid to come out of the closet. Yeah. In all the stories of everybody being like, I yeah, we had no idea what we were making. I, I, I seem to remember there's an, an antidote with the writer of it who was like, yeah, I wrote a gay movie. <laughs> it's not my fault. None of them got it. <laughs> yeah, the screenwriter definitely knew what was going on. Everyone else seemed to be sort of in the dark about it. And the main character in this one is a guy. 
And the guy who plays the character, he, I think later after that movie comes out as gay. Yeah, yeah, he was was closeted at the time. Yeah, and so it's just, there's all of this like really fascinating look at how, again, it's sort of like uh, Jordan Peele does with Get Out, where it's like, I'm going to use horror to talk about racism. Mm -hmm. And this is like, I'm going to talk about horror to talk about the fear, particularly in the 80s, AIDS epidemic, all this stuff going on about coming out of the closet. Huge. Really cool. I just wish it was a better movie because it's so terrible. But yeah. <laughs> that's it's got other. some great moments in it, but yeah, yeah. It, not the best. Well, two things that struck me about Nightmare. The intro credits introducing Johnny Depp. Yes. yes I meant to talk about that. Which is in cool. fact, in our history is I forgot to yeah. mention that Johnny Depp, yeah, he made his debut in Nightmare. Kevin Bacon made his film debut in Friday the 13th. They blew the my first mind one. in Friday when it's Kevin. And thus the six degrees started. So. That's yeah. exactly. <laughs> and he dies in such a horrible way. The spear through the back of the yeah. neck he, from He's under probably the, bed. The, the coolest oh, kill in the movie. Holy crap. But um, we talked about this in Alien, but I was just so impressed with Nightmare. The creativity of practical effects. Like we're still pre-CG. Yeah. And, like, mm-hmm. the stuff to, like, blend the dream and the real world and what happens in the dream world. It's all practical. And it's so impressive and creative. It's so cool. My favorite little effect in that is when Nancy's trying to go up the stairs in her dream. Oh, yes. yeah. But she steps through the stair yeah. into, like, like, a gooey, kind of, like, goopy, gooey glue kind of, yeah. yeah. Like, that's totally, like, such a brilliant way to visualize, like, not being able to run fast in a dream. Yes, totally. I would like to say that my favorite Nightmare film, while you're talking about it, Chris, is actually New Nightmare. Oh, yeah. I think that is such a brilliant movie. And it's, what, two years ahead of Scream? So the meta commentary is there. And that's only the second one that Wes Craven did, right? Or did he come back for three? He produced on three, Produced, okay, that's right. So the idea with New Nightmare is is that it follows real-life actress Heather Langenkamp, whose son is starting to have nightmares about Freddy, and about how there's this ancient evil that has taken the form of Freddy Krueger because he is so popular in the zeitgeist that this is how he comes into our world. This feels like it's tying back to Chris's last topic pool of it, where now we're getting the cosmic horror of an ancient evil <laughs> picking a clown to terrorize the <laughs> yeah. modern town. I mean, Wes Craven is just such, he's a very classically influenced director, even though he started on an exploitation film. Yeah. Before that, he started in Broadway and like plays and stuff. Like that's mm. where he was at. And so, yeah, like the myths of like ancient evils and how they affect humanity as a whole. He's really into that. And I think he's yeah one of the few horror directors that really could have gone on to do stuff that wasn't horror, but he kind of got pigeonholed in there, but also at the same time really enjoyed what he was doing, so it didn't really matter. Yeah. I mean, that kind of makes sense. Nightmare sort of elevates the storytelling. I think that for a genre that has a lot of schlock and some mm-hmm. like pretty bad movies, like that one kind of elevates it with this concept of like, Everybody has to sleep. You have to sleep. And that is terrifying. You cannot avoid it. I could just decide, you know what? Eight million people have been murdered at Camp Crystal. Maybe (laughs) I don't go to Camp Crystal. (laughs) Or or there's sharks in the water. I don't want to swim in the ocean. (laughs) You can't not sleep, though. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll avoid Manhattan just to be safe. Because, you know, (laughs) you might be there for 10 minutes when I'm there. I see a sketchy cruise ship coming into the bay. Yeah, you're like, not for me. Yeah. Anyway, but again, that's just a terrifying concept. It's not just the unstoppable evil. It is got to sleep some point. Got to sleep some point. Mm-hmm. 
Chris, you were about to mention another property, I think. Yeah, you were your about favorites. to mention another one. Oh, yeah, sorry. So Child's Play is yeah. the other one I really love. So, Mikey, I'm so glad you brought that one up for later in the 80s. And I love what you said, how it's almost more of like a thriller suspense movie mm-hmm. because it really is this building momentum. Is this thing possessed or not? What's going on? And the moment I love so much is the mom is just mad. She turns the Chucky doll over. She opens mm-hmm. the battery yeah. panel and there's yeah, no that's batteries. that's such a great moment. Oh, no, wait. She sees the batteries in the box. They fall that's out what of the it box. is. Yeah. So then, then she, she turns them over. Yep. Yeah. And you just have that moment. And I think the head turns around. Yeah, she opens the thing and then his head swivels around super quick and he gives the whole, hi, I'm Chucky. You want to play? Oh, so, so good. good. So good. I think it's such a fun premise of like, yeah. they were like, what is so innocent yeah. and wonderful that we could just totally terrify? Let's pick a doll, a child's doll. And there's all this supernatural that the guys like learn chance to transfer his soul into another thing <laughs> yeah. to survive. I mean, this is the era of the, remember my buddy dolls and kid sister? Right. Oh yeah. My and Cabbage buddy, Patch. Yeah. Kid sister. Oh yeah. And Cabbage Patch. Like that was such a big thing in the eighties. So to work off of that, Oh, I would so like good. to also put out my level of courage. I was getting close to recording tonight and I had to cram for the test. And so I <laughs> downloaded on Amazon Prime Child's Play and Friday the 13th Part 3 and I watched them in a tent in the middle of the woods oh, on a wow. camping trip. <laughs> That's right. At night. I do applaud that. <laughs> and it was Especially intense. Friday. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Friday it was especially. Very, it was very spooky. That's crazy. Mikey, teach. Tell us. Like, I mean, you probably have a million faves, but like what rises to the top? I really do love Nightmare, but I think for me, the slasher franchise I love the most is Friday the 13th. Mm. It's so simple with its execution, and yeah, I mean, it's a guy in a hockey mask. Like Everybody talks about, you know, oh, I'm alone in the woods, and there's a guy out here with a hockey mask. Like that's It's a trope unto yeah, itself. Yeah. It's what I think about when somebody says a slasher movie. I think Jason. Yeah. I mean, he's basically Frankenstein being, by the end of the main run. He's yeah. a zombie who just keeps coming back to life. I mean, like, I own all of the big franchises on Blu-ray or DVD or whatever. But yet, Friday always spoke to me because it was the first slasher series I ever watched through as well. Mm-hmm. And my buddy Jim, back in high school, me and him got on this kick where we were like, we're going to watch, like, you know, the slasher movies that we weren't allowed to watch when we were kids. And so we watched through all of Friday the 13th, all of Halloween, and all of Nightmare on Elm Street. And it was just a blast hanging out in my basement and watching through all those movies. And then as far as standalone films go, I professed my love a lot for Black Christmas. I still think it is. If I could only recommend one slasher movie, it would be Black Christmas. Wow, that's a tall order. Okay. But one I love recommending because it's very obscure. It wasn't a big hit at the time. And it kind of fell through the cracks. And in fact, I wouldn't have known about it unless I had seen a a rerun of it on sci-fi back in the 90s. Uh, It's called The Fun House. And it's directed by Toby Hooper, same guy that did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. And came out in 1981. And it's about a group of high school friends who go to a traveling carnival that's coming to their town, even though they've been warned by their parents, stay away from that <laughs> carnival. Two kids disappeared in there last year. Uh, this is the Tom Hanks big crossover. I've heard about this. Yeah. yeah, this is good. Zoltan shows up and yeah, it's just a big old mess. Uh, but no, they go to this carnival and they decide they're going to go on the dark ride, which is the fun house, the spook house, and they're going to ride 
the ride, but halfway through, they're going to hop off <gasps> and they're going to stay the night in the fun house. Oh, <sighs> bad moves. Come on, bad guys. Moves. And Come on, guys. Kind of the less you know about that, the better, because there is a twist about halfway through, which I think is brilliant and kind of ahead of its time for a slasher movie. And it's like super well paced, very well acted, actually likable characters, just a great fun time. Well, this is fascinating. So I sort of discovered once we chose to do this and you gave some assignments that I, as a fellow movie lover, have very little exposure to the slasher genre. And I can't even say it was a conscious choice. I think it's sort of like I was trying to think of a metaphor while you were talking in history, because obviously I'm a great history student. I'm dozing off and daydreaming. (laughs) It strikes me as visiting Mississippi. I've never purposely (laughs) tried to avoid Mississippi, but it's just never gone. (laughs) Well, there goes the two listeners we had in Mississippi. Um, I've just never gone. And so, like, I this is a huge black hole in my knowledge. So, actually, I enjoyed going through your list. I did make it through the movies. I, I mean, I have I have some like walkaway things that I thought was really interesting. I mean, I'll throw out you know for Psycho, uh, I have done the backlot tour at Universal Studios and have seen the Bates Motel, which is kind oh, of yeah. fun. And so, as your tour bus walks away, Norman Bates comes out. He starts walking like towards you with a knife, which is kind of fun. Oh, that's great. Peeping Tom. I actually watched that with my wife, who was very intrigued by it. And mm-hmm. I thought it was all, you know, actually, it was all worth it for the end of the second act when the blind mother is in his development <laughs> studio. And that yeah. whole, like, 10 minutes showdown of her, like, cornering him and trying to get him to admit to what he's been doing. The mm-hmm. tension is so good. So for that scene, that scene holds up so well. Like, that scene was great. Yeah, the movie's great. It's a shame that it was so maligned when it first came out. I loved, I read a little bit about the first Friday the 13th and that the writer said not only was Halloween an inspiration partially, but also meatballs with Bill Murray. <laughs> yeah. And there's so few like camp comedies. Like I love Wet Hot American Summer. I worked yeah. in summer camps for many years. And so I love that meatballs was a partial inspiration for, for Friday the 13th. It's great. <laughs> I, I do remember, yeah, there's the story of like Sean Cunningham telling the guy, uh, I want to rip off Halloween, but do it in a summer camp. Yeah, I thought, and that was oh, kind yeah. of his his that's like cool. this. Is, that's write me that movie. And then the only the other like uh, observation from those that I thought was really great was uh, in Friday the Thirteenth. Is that the origin of the crazy townie going doom? The the doomed. oracle of doom. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which great. pops up in um, Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, yeah. Now all of that being said, Mikey. Mm. There's one movie on the list you gave that Chris and I both watched, and you are now sitting on the defense team. Oh, is this the sleepaway camp? And we are shining the lights on you. This is your moment (laughs) to defend why sleepaway camp is a penultimate slasher film of the 80s. I think it's because it is so crazy. There's so much going on in that movie with like the flashbacks there's that comeback like there's a lot of really funny dialogue in that movie and there's a lot of crazy performances too like um amanda's aunt who oh my god she she's very over the top and like dreamy she was in a different movie i'm convinced she was in a different movie like she was in some over the top like 20s like oh ring a ding ding like she's yeah. in that yes. kind of a movie <laughs> that movie is a fever dream it's like yeah it's yes. if somebody like had the flu but then somebody came up to him and was like i need a slasher movie 
And so somebody is like sitting there and they've got this fever going on and their brain is slowly melting from the temperatures. And they're like, I'm going to write this slasher movie about the being in a summer camp. And there's some orphans. And by the way, there's a cook in there who's really inappropriate about little kids. And it's, it is such an insane movie. And that's honestly the only reason why I had to recommend it that. And I wanted to know your guys' reaction to that ending because oh, it is so insane. <laughs> I have a, I have aggressive reactions to the this whole movie. The problem is we can't talk about the ending without revealing the ending. Oh, that's a good yeah. point. Well, so, I mean, what we could do is talk about it really quickly and then people don't want it. They could just pop, 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 jump ahead real quick. Yeah. That's true. So, listeners, this is your moment to fast forward. Me, let's give it 90 seconds to two minutes. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to talk about the spoilers at the end of Sleepaway Camp. Yeah. So, uh, the interesting reveal... I'll be honest, it took me a minute to get what was going on mm-hmm. at the very end because in the beginning, you've got the kids with the dad and they're having fun on the water. The boat comes along, runs one of them over. The implication is one of the kids is dead. Yep. And you obviously assume the girl is the survivor. Yeah. And then the twist at the end is you realize the girl all along is really a boy who mm-hmm. the crazy aunt was basically deciding to raise as a girl. Yeah. That part of it was interesting. I just I cannot get over the the kind of transphobia that it implies. Yeah, it's it's weird when you're really thinking about it. You're like, is this transphobic? Because it it does have touches of it for sure, but it also at the same time you're just like, or is it just them trying to comment on? Look at this crazy lady who forced this kid to do something. Yeah, and, and I think the weird implication of like it came because their father was gay and yeah, have like this it, male lover yeah. and it, so it almost makes a comment it feels like a commentary of like somehow i'm going to catch this and now i will be in the lgbt spectrum as well yeah so the 80s <laughs> i mean yeah it's the time yeah. of, you know when the aids epidemic is going on and homophobia is really on the rise that aside the look on her face and the growl the <laughs> <laughs> everybody talks about that it's what not about the, the growl fact. can we talk it's only about really the growl creepy like yeah. there's just something about it that was uncanny and like terrifying it's because it's a male actor with a actual mask a molded mask that they made from the actress's face in oh. that pose and so like it can't move and he's just standing there with it. And then, yeah, they do that weird breathing noise. Oh, that's interesting. Growl. It's, yeah. Like I said, it's just such a crazy kind of trashy movie where all it goes for, like, the whole movie is about the ending. Like, it doesn't care about anything other than trying to get to that twist. Right. So, at the time, it was like somebody came up with that twist, yeah, and then was just like... Everybody do whatever else you want in this movie. So, you know, there's the crazy aunt <laughs> with her weird performance. It does remind me of like when my cousins and my friends and I made got a hold of a camcorder and were just like, let's make a movie. And you start making a movie, you're like, okay, what's this scene? And you do the scene and they're like, okay, well, what comes next? Okay, let's do that. Like yes. it has yes. this like built yeah. in the moment quality to your point. And then it's like, oh yeah, well, we got to end with this scene. So, oh, here we go. <laughs> and then nobody stopped to be like, are we being homophobic and transphobic? Yeah. Are we the bad guys? Are yeah. we the bad guys? <laughs> After watching this great menu that Mikey handpicked for us, there were some like takeaway questions that I had for the genre that hadn't really hit me beforehand. 
And I just want to say, Ben, I feel like there were not to criticize your list, Mikey, but there no. were a couple of movies I wish were on there, which was Dream Warriors. Yeah. Nightmare three. And then Friday four is such a good movie. I think Friday four is fantastic. And I wanted to add it to the first three. But then I felt like if I add like it's four movies, like that's asking too much. I can at least get him to ask for three because one is influential because it's not Jason. Two, yeah. it's because it is Jason, and three because he got the hockey mask. I know. And I like four been... is just a good movie, but it doesn't have the gravitas that the other oh, three. So he gets do. the hockey mask at the end of three. No, in three, like in the middle of three. Don't, you watched three. I'm not, 3D. Do you pay attention to anything that you do it's, anymore? It's, it's time to tell the truth. I fell asleep after about a half an hour. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and I just couldn't finish it in time. I was I was really bored. I take back my gold star from you. <laughs> yes. There was a lot of movies I wanted to add to that list, but it was like, all right, if I need to narrow this down, I was looking at more not as somebody who like loves slasher movies, but I've got to introduce people that have never seen a slasher movie to slasher movies. Right. To your point, you know what people who haven't watched a lot of slasher movies that was your menu. Keeping that in mm-hmm. mind, that that's the list I watched. Some of these questions might be missing the mark because I haven't seen a broader spectrum of 80s slashers. So my mm-hmm. first of three questions to the both of you, I feel like when I look at slasher villains or serial killers today in movies and television, there's so much backstory to them. We need to know their MO. We need to know where they came from. Why are they doing this? And who is yeah. the ancient hero who's going to come back to save us all? And in most of these I watch, it's like, nope, this dude loves blood and he found a sword. Like... <laughs> what I, is that just my like lack of knowledge of 80s or is it really like what is this about like not needing much backstory to just like here's an evil villain he's gonna kill a bunch of people we gotta stop him well it's a revenge right it's i've been wronged in some way jason was taunted as a child mm-hmm. because he had a physical deformities was he drowned by he was kids? drowned by bullies who like tossed yeah. him in the lake and he couldn't swim and the counselors were too busy drinking doing drugs and having sex to <laughs> yeah, pay attention don't do, to him. don't do that evil triumvirate and so yeah that's why pamela showed up and was like i'm gonna kill you all and then the great twist at the end of the first movie is yeah. Jason jumps out of the lake and grabs the main character in the canoe. That scared the be- I jumped off the couch. That scared the bejesus <laughs> out of me. That's good. It still works. Yes. And remember, Freddy was a real life monster. He was yes. a child murderer. Right. And so the parents of the town band together and burned him to death. And so he's like, I'm going to kill all your kids in their dreams. I mean, it's not an elaborate backstory, but these are mm-hmm. there are origin stories for some of these characters. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Michael's kind of the outlier on the fact that it's just like he was a kid who went crazy, he killed his sister, and now he's an adult who is still crazy and just wants to keep killing people. Okay, well, that's really helpful. The second question, you touched on history a little bit, but as I watched these all for the first time, you know, and I went through them in uh, chronological order. So Peeping Tom is obviously like, all right, he's looking at these these victims through the camera. He loves watching Mm -hmm. them as he kills them. And then I watch Black Christmas, and it's always like this guy muttering to himself. Mm -hmm. And then we're like first person from Jason Voorhees. And I'm like, okay, wait a second. And then we're we're inside Chucky's head as the doll's running around the living room. I'm like, all right, yeah. why are all these first person point of view from the killers? What's what's yeah. this with this trend? Why is this a thing? Well, I mean, with Peeping Tom, it's about putting the audience in the killer's shoes. I mean, it's mm-hmm. making you feel gross by having yeah. to you you are having to experience his murders in this way. But with the other ones, like a lot of I'm trying to think if there is one where, like, there's a POV shot during a murder. 
and I'm having a hard time, somebody, I'm, I'm now in the situation where there's somebody out there actually possibly listening to this uh, who is like, this movie did it. Because the big thing with Friday the 13th, the first one is you don't know who the killer is until the very end. Right. So there actually is a bit of murder, like a m- bit of mystery to it. That's fun. Yeah. With Child's Play, it's actually budget. And like, is a guy in a doll suit running around going to look good? Or should we just move the camera around at doll head height? And <laughs> Genius. Like, it's, this, it's the same reason why Jaws like was like that. They couldn't uh, get the shark to work. Yeah. So yeah. what do we do instead? We've got the camera. And it has the added benefit of, I think it does ratchet up the tension because yeah. you see the unseen menace mm-hmm. coming at the person from behind and you yes. care about that person or maybe you don't. But like, I think there is something about that POV that it's not only uncomfortable for you, but it's it's a little exciting too. Like you're in yeah. on the secret a There's little bit. There's a voyeur bit. aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But unless you're a total monster, you're sitting there being like, please don't do this. I don't want to be a part of this. Yep. I don't want to be yep. here. I don't want to kill I'm this sorry. person. I'm sorry. What did you just call me? <laughs> what did you just total call me? Total monster for enjoying the I love all the POV shots. Oh my God. Get them. Get them. Oh my God. Uh, the, so the last question I have for you guys, we've touched on it a couple times, but it's interesting in this, in this time where, as you said, like when you look at MPA ratings- Mm-hmm. And the government in the 80s was very conservative. Yeah. And you would think, you know, Hollywood is oftentimes, uh, at least in the in the art it's producing, is much more progressive or, or yes. eating culture. And all these movies, even if you have an interest in sex or mm-hmm. an interest in drugs or an interest in alcohol, you will be murdered brutally. So yeah. you, you have this Puritan resurgence in the 80s. <laughs> Why is this? Why is this happening? Well, what it is really, first off, you have to have an audience who can say, I understand why they're getting killed. Mm. There has to be, there has to be some form of, okay, they're an a-hole, I'll allow it. Yeah, that guy's, you know, doing drugs or like he's kind of a jerk to his girlfriend and like talks her into sex. I'm okay with them getting killed. But honestly, later on in the 80s, when it became such a trope, I think a lot of it was to do with the MPAA and being like, we can talk more, not just to the audience, but we're talking to the audience of the MPAA that's going to watch this movie and then give us a rating for it. So if they're okay with us saying drugs and sex and alcohol are bad, that's going to be better for us. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also another issue. It's not even just the people who are engaging in vices, shall we say, but often too, it's like the minority characters that are getting killed off too. That's a trope that is, yeah, been hard. And so that's challenging for, I think, a completely different reason, because it's not so much punish the excess, but there's Mm -hmm. almost this underlying tone of like, eliminate the other sort of a thing. And that's very problematic. And that's why you have a movie like Scary Movie where they're going to like make fun of that to the yes. in the best way that the Waynes can. They're going to like really dig into that aspect of which characters do get punished and, yeah. and for Who what gets reasons. To live. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was just shocking to me, you know, and Mikey you talked about it. it's it's sort of a, what's fascinating about these movies is they really highlight what was frightful at that time in society mm-hmm. and that changes and that evolves yeah if these horror slashers are filmed today like the vices to be punished by a killer are not sex a natural human thing that everybody does mm-hmm. or things like drugs and alcohol that don't necessarily harm other people but yes. you think of things that really tick people off today i don't know violence against other people white collar crime things that happen at higher levels of power 
it's just it would be interesting to be like ah yes teenagers are interested in sex they deserve to die in this movie like it's such a product of the time yes oh, absolutely it's the reagan era it's conservatism it's just say no it's all those things so even if you don't believe in those things it's still all in our culture and it's there. And so even if you unconsciously write about it, it seeps in. You know, another great one we haven't talked about. Well, it's not a great movie. It's kind of terrible. But interesting <laughs> is Toxic Avenger. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't know if you trauma. call it a slasher yeah. per se, trauma. but really Sorry. that's all about pollution it is, and yeah. environmental destruction. Yeah. Someone's revenge for basically, you know, kind of like the Joker being thrown into a toxic pit and becoming this hideous monster and taking revenge. And so there is some commentary to be had about the world that we live in. A lot of them do focus on this part, like what the what the filthy teens are out there doing and the, you know, in the shadows. But some of it's also about like this broader commentary of like, you know, we're, we're trashing the planet. That may not be the best idea. <laughs> yeah, it's like the darker, trashier Captain Planet. It's great. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, chemistry is always one of my favorite classes. I know there's so much we could talk about in this genre. Are there other things, when you knew we were going to talk about slashers, that you really want to talk about how these movies or other slasher movies in the 80s hit you, struck you, memories of them? Personally, I just want to say real quick, I love the tropes. Mikey mentioned some of them, but there's so mm-hmm. many others are that are yeah. great. I feel like Friday the 13th is really big on the do vicey things and mm-hmm. die. You know, there's the teleportation where the monster's behind you. There's tripping on nothing as you're running through the woods. Oh, yeah. And then there's the interactive element of like, as a viewer, you get to be like, I would do this so much better mm-hmm. than you. Why are you doing this? Don't go. You know, you talked about this last time, Ben. Don't go in there. Get out of the house. Right. <laughs> Why are you making so much noise? No, don't investigate the sound. Like there's some fun. To Mikey's point about like, this was an era of like these fun slasher movies. It had that engaging kind of quality, and the POV shots sort of added to some of the spectacle of it. All of those tropey things that then obviously get mocked in these 90s movies that I know we're going to talk about next class period. It's just really cool. I love that. Yeah. All right. Before you dive into this, Ben, I did come up with another slasher movie. Oh, great. There's a film from 2002. It's a mockumentary called Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Okay. Hmm. It follows a film crew that is following a man who is in training to be the next big slasher icon. Because the film is set in a world where Freddy, Jason, Chucky, Michael, they're all real people. All those murders happened and slashers are just kind of a way of life. And so this film crew gets to in bed with this guy who's in training and plotting his first big kind of coming out party as a slasher and it gets to play with all the tropes and there's a lot of cameos by like genre greats robert england is in it and it's just such a fun movie for people that like slasher movies well that's oh, fun wow. what was it called again it's called behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon it actually sounds pretty huh. fun i kind of like the sound of that it's great well, this has been awesome, but I don't know about you guys, but running through the woods all day today has really got my stomach burbling, and I- Oh, so hungry. I need a snack for sure. If we don't mind swinging by the cafeteria, let's all stay together, and then we'll see if we can make it to contemporary culture. Yeah, I just hope that the chef washed all those knives. <laughs> Cereal. It's supposed to be good for you. I'm not going to try it. Let's get Mikey. Yeah. 
He won't need it. He hates everything. He likes it. Hey, Mikey. Regular, cinnamon, and raisin life. Nutritious, delicious. Get a color TV or a Sony Betamax or a TV video game. Get it now because Crazy Eddie can't be beat. With prices so low, he's practically giving it all away. Shop around, get the best prices you can find. Then go to Crazy Eddie and Crazy Eddie will beat him. Remember, Crazy Eddie guarantees you the largest selection, professionally staffed service centers, and the guaranteed lowest prices. Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane. We managed to all stay around the campfire. We heard a lot of noises out in the distance. None of us went to see what was going on. I'm proud of us. We made well, it. Well, I was impressed. I never knew you were such a good ukulele player. I really like your like yeah. camp songs you sang with the ukulele. That was nice. I'm glad you enjoyed. So before we get into how these 80s slashers influence cinema and other pop culture going forward, I do want to ask a question. Mikey, one of the documentaries you prescribed was Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of the Slasher Film. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about, was there a fall? Was there a decline in slasher films after the 80s? And what happened? Why? What happened? Well, I mean, as you said, or as I brought up kind of with like the end of the 80s and all of the releases there, it just was out of style. We were entering the 90s. The audience for it wasn't there anymore. All the teenagers that were seeing those movies in you know the early 80s are now young adults they're going to go see something else. Or if they want a horror movie, they're not going to go see Friday the 13th Part 9. The 90s and horror are really hard because I don't want to say it's like the 70s in the way that America was a little bit depressed. I mean, we were dealing with even more so racial inequality was becoming a huge thing again. Uh, you've got, you know, the Rodney King stuff, uh, OJ, you've got so much horrible stuff happening. The Gulf War. Mm -hmm. Horror really wasn't on the menu, especially not a movie about, you know, guys walking around killing people with knives. Nobody wanted to see that anymore. So it took until 1996, mm -hmm. a little film called Scream. Yeah. Uh, Scream, once again, directed by Wes Craven. He's back. Was the kind of rebirth of the slasher film but they did it in such an interesting way because it's considered to be kind of the first meta horror film exactly where people are very aware of horror and their tropes uh mm -hmm. the people in the film uh, as i said new nightmare was you know a couple of years beforehand and deals with a lot of the same things but was also kind of you know dependent on do i like freddy krueger so am i going to see that movie maybe and both not by craven though i mean yes both by point. craven yeah both craven so I would definitely think that the reason why Craven signed on for this film is his experience with the idea of a meta horror film. Right. Once again, we've got, you know, a cast of quote unquote high schoolers who are actors <laughs> in their, all, all are actors in their twenties. Full on adults. Main character is literally prototypical final girl bait. Sydney Prescott, uh, her mom was murdered years before when she was younger, who is now being targeted by this mysterious killer who's wearing a strange ghost face mask. But like I said, the movie does a lot to let the audience know, hey, we know what horror movies are like. We know all the tropes. We're going to subvert them and also play with them. Mm -hmm. It's like, a, yeah, all those movies, they were pretty stupid back in the day, but we're smart. And so are you. Yeah. Because you know about them. And yeah, that movie would go on for, like I said, there's a fifth one coming out. 
in January or February, I believe, of next year. Called Scream, which is, again, called supposed Scream. to be a subversion mocking the same movie coming out over and over again, reboots and that kind of thing. Yeah, the the idea of let's make a remake or a sequel to... <laughs> yes. I was sort of wondering if Scream is partially a culprit of the downfall of 80 slashers because I'm wondering, so I've, I've worked for many years in the theme park industry mm-hmm. and we always talk about like what the guest sees is the magic. That's the fantasy that removes you. But if like in Funhouse, you stay the night and got off the boat and stayed inside, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's ugly behind the scenes. It's all like engineering and dusty and metal and pistons. Yeah. And like, it's not that cool and it kills the magic. It's not that great. So I'm wondering if Scream is like, hey, guess what, audience? You're as smart as we are. We all know these are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then the sub-sub version of the scary movie movies is that sort of like we're all now mocking these and poking fun at these and this starts to break them down. Scary Movie is an interesting one franchise-wise because the first couple of the – well, the first one really – is really kind of a fun spoof movie about Scream and slasher films in general. But then they fall off the rails after that, and they just become about ridiculous films altogether. Yeah. You are very correct in Scream being like, yeah, that final nail in the coffin of the slasher film. Yeah. um, Where it is also a slasher film, but standalone. I, I liken it a lot to how hair metal was killed by grunge. Oh, hmm. interesting. You know, hair metal big bands were in the 80s, just weren't successful in the 90s because suddenly grunge was here and that was telling us what we actually wanted to hear at the time. Hmm. That's interesting. I like that. Another big factor were the videotape. I mean, it had been growing and growing in the 80s and going into the 90s. VCRs were affordable. Actual tapes themselves were affordable. And so instead of gambling on putting, you know, a couple million dollars, $10 million into this horror film, you can only put a couple million dollars into it and we're going to release it direct to video and it'll definitely make money on it in video rentals alone. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of it is just what Hollywood is willing to finance too, right? Like right now we know you can't make anything unless it's pretty much a reboot or a superhero movie or whatever. And Mm -hmm. so... You know, a lot of it is sort of at the whims of what they're willing to pay for. But, I mean, Scream did kind of breed its own kind of sub-genre genre of proto-horror films. I mean, you had that followed up with I Know What You Did Last Summer. Oh, my God. I yep. forgot about – what was her name? Jennifer Love Hewitt? Was that? I Know What yep. You Did Last – oh, my God. I forgot yep. about those. I know. The real heartthrob in that, though, was Freddie Prince Jr., let's be honest. Freddie Prince I mean, Jr. <laughs> Uh, none of them really caught the imagination, though, of audiences quite like Scream. Right. Of course, following the 90s, we get into the early aughts and remakes were the soup de jour right. of right. that decade. And yeah, countless remakes of Your a lot of Your beloved Rob Zombie Halloween. Yeah, the Rob Zombie Halloween is in there. Um, there's a couple of them in there that are actually pretty decent. The Amityville Horror remake I enjoy. The Hitcher remake isn't bad. The the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake is actually really good. Okay. It does lean into the gore a lot oh, more than boy. the original ever did. There are two more modern slasher movies that are more of like a crazy twist on them that I love. Can I guess? Oh, yeah. Give it a guess. Is it... Happy Death Day to You. No. Is that one of them? No, that what? is not. No? That's such a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, that, that one up. and uh, Freaky. I don't know either of those. Is it Cabin in the Woods? So one is Cabin in the Woods. Oh, Cabin in the Woods, yes. Which if you haven't For seen sure. Cabin in the Woods, it's, it's this very complex story that's basically 
young, sexually energized drug alcohol people go to a cabin. There are a bunch of objects around the in the basement. If you touch an object, that summons a specific monster or killer to come kill everybody. But there's a whole nother story level about who's, who's maintaining this cabin and the objects within it. That yeah. movie is, I wrote down pure genius. I love Cabin it is. in the Woods. Yes. It's great. I would confidently say I think that is one of the best horror films ever made. Ever. And all it made me want was a TV series where different groups of teenagers right? come and touch different <laughs> crap in the basement. We see what happens. I would love an Office-like series based on that movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, did you hear about the teens over the weekend? It was ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And the other movie I love is Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Yes. Such a fantastic send-up of slasher films. Right. Yeah. Again, if you haven't seen it, it's the play on Friday the 13th. Bunch of sexually driven people going for a cabin for the weekend. They meet these, what appear to be simple country folk. One being Alan yep. Tudyk, who I love. <laughs> and these kids just accidentally keep killing themselves. <laughs> but the two country folk always seem to be nearby. So they think they're two yeah. murderers. And they're like, oh my god, these kids just keep killing themselves. It's yes. great. It's so It is funny. fantastic. I know there are ones that stink, like these ripoffs, these remakes. But are there ones that yeah. you guys love that have come afterwards? Well, Mikey, I'm so glad you brought up Happy Death Day. It's such a great movie. Mm -hmm. It's basically a horror movie meets Groundhog Day. Yeah. I even really enjoyed the sequel. Yeah, I the, thought sequel's the sequel's a lot was, of fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's not as good as the first one, but yeah. like such a great concept and such a great movie. And the same director, writer, also did a film called Freaky with Vince Vaughn, mm. where it's if Happy Death Day was Groundhog Day meets a slasher, this is Freaky Friday meets a slasher. It's this teenage girl and Vince Vaughn, a serial killer, swap bodies. What? Wow. Yeah. I'm writing these down right now. These are on the watch list. That's awesome. Hilarious and fun throughout. Yeah. So, of course, we have like movie influences. There is a board game I love called Last Friday, which is definitely Friday the 13th. And it's yeah. sort of like Scotland Yard oh, if you're a board gamer where the one player plays the slasher and you don't see where they are on the board and they're moving around and everyone else are camp counselors or campers. Trying to survive, yeah. set traps, find the find the killer. Mm -hmm. That's a great spinoff in pop culture for board games. Are there other things we think that are really important that have sort of riffed off of these 80s slashers? Wait, isn't there a television show called Scream Queens? There is, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. There there was, and there actually was a Scream television series. That's right. That's on right. MTV, which I never watched, Ooh. but I heard decent things about. This is going to sound really geeky. Any asymmetrical multiplayer game where it's one person playing as the bad guy and yeah. a group of people either trying to hide. I mean, Dead by Daylight wouldn't exist without slashers where one person yeah. takes over literally a slasher icon. I believe Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger and Leatherface are in that game now. Um, and other people are in this arena trying to escape from him. And very similarly, they Friday the 13th has a game like they that. They do have it a does. game play online you can be jason you can teleport like you get all of his ridiculous powers yeah it is slightly dead though i don't know if the servers for it are still live or mm. not but it ran into the same problem that the series ran into which is uh, a rights dispute oh. there was a big settlement recently i believe where it's like somebody actually won so it is over with so potentially we could see a new friday the 13th movie at some point hmm well, and this is way out of my genre of games, but Chris, I think this is in your wheelhouse. For like Mortal Kombat 11, wasn't Jason Voorhees a, down, a winnable character? Or I think it's Mortal character? Kombat X, isn't it? X. The the 10th 10th one. I think it's X, and it's um, Jason 
Freddy, and I believe Leatherface. Yeah, Leatherface is in there, too. Oh, all three. And I think a Xenomorph. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think there's actually a Xenomorph. And I think, is there not a Predator as well? Please tell me there's a Predator. Uh, Me, I think you might be right. AVP, Uh, the best incarnation. Which, if we want to talk about, Predator is a slasher movie, too. He does have wrist blades. A lot of creative deaths in Predator, for sure. It's amazing. I mean, they even slashed down the forest with the chain gun. It's great. so good. It's great. Well, if I can, if I'm allowed to do this, if spoilers are allowed, bring contemporary culture home. Can anyone tell me how Freddy versus Jason turns oh, out? Oh, yeah. Here we go. I haven't seen it in a while, so go for it, Mikey. So the thing with Freddy versus Jason is that it is possibly one of the dumbest scripts in all of horror slashers. It's like so exposition heavy because they're also trying to pander to the people who've never seen a Freddy Krueger movie and never seen Jason Voorhees movies because maybe they'll show up and see this movie about these two guys that have had 10 movies to their name before. Boy. Basically, it's Freddy has been forgotten. So he is no longer able to kill people in their dreams and nobody cares about him anymore. So he wakes up and revives Jason Voorhees. To go out and kill people, but then he's going to take credit for the kills, so then kids will remember who he is again and he can become stronger. But then the kids, they realize that, and so they pull Freddy out of the dream world so Jason can fight him. Like, there's no logic in this movie at all. What is happening? And you know what you're going in for with it, though? Because it is so much fun. It's a great movie. And the end fight scene is phenomenal. It's directed by mm-hmm. Ronnie Yu, who is a martial arts director by trade, who would go on to do Bride of Chucky and Seed of Chucky. Oh, yeah. I saw I saw Bride of Chucky. He brings that Hong Kong action style to the final fight between Freddy and Jason. And it is just blood splays. It is arterial patterns in fountain-like expulsions. It's great. It's a Tarantino dream. Just yeah. blood everywhere. At the end of it, Freddy like slashes Jason to death. He falls in the water after Jason has ripped his arm off, the gloved one. Whoa. Freddy is going to kill the final girl with Jason's machete, but then his own hand erupts out his chest because from the water, Jason has thrown his arm like a spear. As you do. Freddy drops the machete and the girl picks it up and she cuts off Freddy's head and <gasps> kicks him into the lake. And then so after the movie's all over, like there's this shot of Crystal Lake because that's where the final battle is. Yeah, obviously. And slowly Jason emerges from the water, like, you know, Frankenstein walking out of water just upright. But as soon as his hand peeks through the water, you see that he's holding Freddy's head, who then winks at the winks. camera oh, and then laughs and the movie so ends. Good. What? It is you know so what entertaining. You into and it's so much fun. That's actually really good. I like that a lot. Well, if that's the case, it's time to go to the scales. Let's put a machete on one end and a glove filled with knives on the other. And uh, let's see how 80 slashers hold up today. I want to go to math class and see how this shakes out. Let's do it. All right. I want to try and break math class into two parts. This is like foiling, if you guys remember foiling. We have to separate the equations a little bit (laughs) to get to the final answer. I want to start with, do these specific movies, these slasher movies from the 80s, how do they hold up today? What do you guys think? I'm sorry, what's the other part so I know how to answer both of these questions? The idea of the slasher genre in general. Okay. So as far as 
how do 80s slashers hold up today? I think (sighs) (laughs) they do and they don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of them do really well, and some of them are like sleepaway camp and are extremely problematic with a lot of their themes. I mean, just a lot of slashers in general have been complained about being misogynist. Yeah. Because it's always, you know, women getting killed or it's the women having sex or enjoying sex or just being a strong or independent woman, you get killed. Right. And that is true for some of them. But I also would say I feel like men get killed just as much as women in these things. And a lot of them for being douchey men. Uh, (laughs) Like, there's not a lot of men that survive in a horror movie that you would go, that guy should have died. Well, in one of the Fridays, there's a dude who's like training for the freaking Paralympics and he's in a yes, wheelchair. Yeah. He is the sweetest guy in part he's two. Such yes. A good guy. He should have lived. Yeah, he's like the one where you're like, oh my God, he did not deserve it. I know. But then on the opposite side of like the idea of it being misogynist is you have the final girl trope. Yeah. I mean, it's a trope because it is women get to survive those kind of movies. Sure, they go through hell, but. It's at the hands of a man often a lot of time, and I would argue that's obviously real, really realistic. I mean, what's more realistic than a woman having to go through hell, but at least being strong enough and triumphing? Like, that's an awesome story, I think. Yeah, it's true. It's a good great point. But then on the idea of are slasher movies still viable? I think they are, as long as you are evolving the movement at the times. I mean, like, Scream is the perfect example of that, of we're going to be smart about it turn it on its ear and be like, hey, look, this has changed and this has changed, but some of these things still hold true. As far as, like, is a slasher movie modern? Like, can that happen in a modern age? Can that idea be successful? I would argue Us is a pretty great example. Yeah. It's Jordan Peele. He's making a great commentary about not only race, but also class in that movie. Yeah. Mm. I don't think you get to us without like the history of slashers being there as kind of the template to work off. Great call out us crushes. And I haven't seen Candyman yet. His Candyman. I haven't either. I really want to see it, which is, yeah, it's a, it's a slasher movie, uh, which Mm. really should have watched that. Now I'm kicking myself. Why didn't Ah, I go see that before we recorded this? (laughs) (laughs) So I would say on my take, trying to parse this question apart, do these specific movies we talked about from the eighties hold up today? I think a lot of the storytelling and writing is sort of outdated, like the commentary it makes about gender and sex and children. Those are like really uncomfortable to watch today and feel really outdated. Mm -hmm. That being said, I'm going to go back to Carpenter. I'm going to go back to Craven and their teams that they brought in for these movies. Yes. Because the practical effect creativity is brilliant. Yes. And I love seeing and trying to figure out how would you pull that off? Mm-hmm. You didn't just do that in After Effects. Like, that is amazing. What did you do practically on set with springs and pulleys and knobs? Like, that's amazing. That was something I wanted to touch on in the history. Yeah, I was talking about the makeup effects, but I didn't I didn't want to stretch this out into five hours. <laughs> I think that's amazing and brilliant. I think that is really cool and holds up really – I mean, yeah, some practical effects are like, wow, that was like ridiculous. But again, mm-hmm. when you see the spear come up through the bed, through Kevin Bacon's yeah. neck, you're like, oh my god, they just killed Footloose. Jesus. Like, it's really Yeah, a cool. lot of those effects still really hold up. They're yeah. great. Yeah. And some of the premises that are a little more creative, like Nightmare on Elm Street, like Child's Play, I'm actually, having only seen the first ones because of your homework, I'm actually intrigued to watch more of them because I'm like, all right, mm. where is this going to go? This is unique on just a maniac with a knife killing 
horny teenagers. So I feel <laughs> like that's the part that does hold up. I like that. Yeah. I think slashes in general, I, I couldn't have said it better. I'm glad that you could confirm because my what I wrote down in my own notes was like, maybe I'm just out of the loop and I'm missing something. But I haven't. I felt like I haven't seen a slasher that was like a multi-blockbuster, making the dough, killing it at yeah. the theaters in a really long time. Yeah, we didn't touch on it, but uh, where the money is now with horror and what's quote unquote scary to people, I think is supernatural. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally ghost movies agree. are huge right now. Stuff like, or like, uh, for me, my number one, I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but when you sit around like a campfire with friends and you're like, what scares the crap out of you? What's like the scariest thing? Mine is always possessed children. <laughs> that scares the bejesus. So stuff yeah. like Insidious. Yes, like, I love that movie. Scares the crap out of me. Yeah. And I just don't think I've seen the just psycho with a knife hunting down people. I just, I don't know if that holds up. I completely now just remembered one. Go on. It just came out literally a month ago, too. Is James Wan, the guy who directed Insidious and The Conjuring and Saw, for that matter. He did this movie called Malignant. Oh, yeah. Which not only is kind of a slasher movie, but what it really is, is it's a tribute to the Giallo films of the 70s and 80s. Oh. Hmm. It's, I wouldn't say great, but it's a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie. This is this is a humbling moment for me. This is how out of the loop I am. I thought Malignant was somehow tied to Maleficent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're both M words. Why wouldn't they? I thought it was a sequel, like Maleficent, more malignant. Like, I didn't know what was going on. That's great. Chris, bring us home. Yes, How do you feel the 80s slasher films and slasher as a genre hold up in 2021? Yeah, this is admittedly not my subgenre of horror. You guys talking about the ones that you like. I really like found footage movies when they're done well and they don't stretch a premise. I love those because maybe it's the point of view perspective that you sometimes get that puts you into that moment. And it's like, it's more of a psychological thriller than like straight up horror. What I find about slasher movies is they're often filled with schlock and Mm -hmm. excess. Gore and body horror aren't interesting to me. And I generally really don't like morality plays where taboo behaviors, as we've been talking about, land you in a pile of body parts. That's frustrating. (laughs) Kind of to Ben's point, in the rare instances when it's done well, I'm like, so therefore, right? A couple of things that we didn't get to talk about. Surprise endings. A lot of these yeah, have a twist ending. Yeah, twists. Yeah, we talked about Jason jumping out at the end of the first Friday yep. movie. When Nancy gets in the car with her friends, the top of the convertible comes up and it's red right, and green yeah, stripes. And the mom gets pulled through the door in a weird ending sequence. And so like those twist endings, and, and even though it was terrible, Sleepaway Camp did have some of that as well. <laughs> Another great thing we didn't talk about is a lot of these have great iconic theme songs and musical cues. Oh, yeah. The soundtrack to Nightmare, for instance, is amazing. And Halloween. But also movies like Jaws, even Psycho, right? Oh, yeah. It's just a lot of great like repetition and scent and simplicity to some of that. I love that aspect of it. And I always try to champion creativity where you can stretch great effects and performances from limited budgets. I love pushing boundaries and being scrappy. So that's all great. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. wish it wasn't often at the expense of objectifying women, people of color, LGBT folks, and others that are not seen as in the mainstream. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is very 80s. And so that's yeah. where they get kind of locked in a bit of a time capsule. Ugh, that's not worth opening. One might hope that it remains buried 
like a slasher you think you just killed. Unfortunately, <laughs> those problems just keep coming back. Before we get to my favorite part of 80s High, we cannot thank you enough, Mikey. Man, I can't yes. thank you enough for having my babbling butt on here. No, this was great. I mean, there was nobody else that could have absolutely crushed slasher films of the 80s better than you could have. So thank you so much for teaching us and our listeners all about this hallmark thing, pop culture icon. Was so happy to be here. Loved every yeah, minute absolutely. of it. It was a blast. It was so great. With that being said, Christopher. Benjamin. The microphone is yours for the fourth and final Topic to mm. close out season two's October Halloween themed. Oh man, I'm here back. for this. What's it gonna be? How are you gonna close this out? What's just what's the topic for next episode? It's so exciting. Yeah, we're getting close to the end of October. A month that goes out with a big finale, I dare say, gentlemen. A bigger finale than December. Whoa. I said it. I agree. One hundred percent. He just Halloween over Christmas. Wow. This next episode, in fact, is going to drop on the week of Halloween. And I wanted us to go out with a fitting tribute to the month, the holiday, and the decade we celebrate on this very show. Mm. It's funny, as I was thinking back on my childhood, nothing to me says Halloween in the 1980s more than our next topic. (gasps) The Garfield Halloween special. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) So prepare yourself, Ben. As darkness falls across the land and the foulest stench is in the air, as oh. grisly ghouls from every tomb are closing in to oh, seal your doom. Oh, I love it. I know Wait what it is. You Wait heard it right, folks. Wait a minute. If you should be found without the soul for getting down, make sure you tune in next week. For <laughs> no mere mortal will dare resist Michael Jackson's masterpiece <gasps> music video. Oh, no, you did. Thriller. Well, actually, I would call it John Landis's thriller because he's the one who directed it. Mikey, get out of here! Fine, I'll go. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical. Stay radical.